Welcome to LFG 1904 show. Yeah! I'm joined by Dustin. It's your boy B. Graf. You know the fucking deal. Coming live out of the LFG 1904 studio in La Mesa. In Dustin's kitchen. Yeah, we're back home, baby. <sighs> what? We did a road trip. What a fucking trip we've had this last weekend. Was it wild for you or did you, you know, you're on vacation. Oh, yeah, I'm on vacation. You're, every day is a magical day for you. It's been a, it's been a blessing. I worked a week and a half. I worked open to close on Friday. Then we had the brawl, San Diego, Harley Davidson, oh, our boy, Joey five, five took home the silver yep. to dine and eight who he, he fucking crushed it. Yeah. He crushed it. It was good. He absolutely it was a really crushed good it. show. Sea bear showed up. They did the damn thing. Mm-hmm. We sold t-shirts. We're getting ready to run a flash sale. We're going to run an inventory. See what we have left. If you are listening to this, by the time this comes out tomorrow morning, everything probably won't be inventoried and up there for a flash sale, but we're getting ready to go on a bachelor trip to Utah and we're going to do an episode there and it will be running then. And then you can go buy the leftovers of what we have so we can go print more new cool shit. So do that for yeah, us. Yeah, I was going to say, hey, we're, there's going to be about 14 of us, I believe. But any anybody that listens to this show, if you happen to see us, this would be kind of interesting because we're going to be going through three states yep. and a lot of gas stations. If you happen to see us, you will have free gear for life. I'm going <laughs> to say it right now. If you get clips yeah. if you of see, us yeah, ripping. If you see us out there ripping... You got, I mean, that's it. Send you the clips to the IG, yeah. LFG, nine, yeah, LFG. Got, dot 1904. You, you will have free gear forever. Like you, will you heard be, it here first. You'll bold be, statement. I mean, it's a bold yeah. statement. You'll, you'll be sponsored by LFG because that's just why I, feel, I just feel lucky. Huh? Finish him. Yeah. Let's introduce our guest today. Yes. Let's Welcome to the show. Fred, how are you doing, man? I'm good, man. Fucking Fred, baby. Let's go. <laughs> Dustin <laughs> told me, he was like, we're going to have Fred on the show and, uh, You've never heard a story, but buckle up because it's a fucking wild one. And then I met him at the taco shop and he was like, I'd be more than willing to. And it was like, I still don't know yeah. what to expect, but I'm like nervous now that I'm in the chair. I'm like, oh, fuck. no, no, it's going to be good. Kenny and Kenny's been pushing to me. First of all, Kenny's episode crushed. crushing time, you know, currently. Yeah, still crushing. And, you know, the moment we got done, Fred, he was like, you guys have to have Fred on. You have to have Fred on. Good old and Kenny. Like, yeah. <laughs> and like I said, I've, I've heard just a little bit of your story, you know, and um, I was blown away with some of the stories that you were saying during that meeting. And I was like, fuck, let's fucking go. So we always kick it off, man. Where are you from? Um, I was born in San Clemente. Yeah, right <laughs> down the freeway. Straight 1903, up. Yeah, 1903, baby. Oh, my. Oh, I have a huge group of friends that live up there, and they uh, the group is called Trollson County. Okay. You ever heard of these dudes? No. Gnarly dudes. I'm probably older. So. No, there, there are some older heads. Okay. They're like in their 40s on their ways up there. How old are you? I'm 49, coming up Woo! 50. Preserved. Yeah, I know. I looks, said this before the show, but I'll say it again. Yeah, it looks, he looks good. <laughs> a stud. Yeah. Thanks. So, so growing up San Clemente, what a place to grow up. Grew up surfing Sano. Uh, T Street. T yeah, Street. T Street. Ticonderoga. Um, there was a beach down the road called Pochi mm-hmm. that I used to hang out at a bit before it was all polluted. And um, yeah, just all around San Clemente. Hell that was, yeah. That was Hell a yeah. spot. I've gotten slammed at Riviera a couple times. <laughs> Smacked on some shore break. Good but times. good times. So what was home life like? Uh, being a kid in the 70s was, was good, man. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I had no complaints about the way I grew up. Um, 
wasn't rich, wasn't poor. Uh, dad was a teacher. He was a high school teacher in Laguna Beach. And uh, my mom was just a stay-at-home mom, best mom in the world. And um, life was good, man. Yeah, it was really uh, good times. Like nothing um, traumatic or negative happened in my life. Just um, had a really great childhood. And like, of course, you know, in the 70s, it was just different. You know, like the way I was raised um, compared to how I raised my kids. Right. Just different deal like i had a lot of freedom and um uh life was good absolutely yeah man. so you're the only child i got older siblings my dad had um a son from his first marriage that's 10 years older and then my mom had three kids from a, a prior marriage that are all um older my sister's 10 years older my other brother's 13 years older and then oh, wow. the oldest one was 16 years older than me so uh, okay kind of like an only child you know no one the, the siblings weren't at the house they weren't there so no yeah. you got all the attention all the attention damn Hell yeah san clemente great place to grow up i can yep. imagine where, where did things obviously you're here because you're in recovery where did things go <laughs> awry <laughs> well i mean they were always awry for me which is kind of weird like you know i i listened to kenny you know, when he talks and t told his story about just substance and s substances always being in the picture. And like, it was kind of like that for me too. You know, um, I had older siblings. Um, there were older kids that lived on my street. Uh, I grew up um, right by the San Clemente High School and uh, our, the house I grew up in backed up to a park. And um, at lunchtime, the high schoolers were in the park smoking weed and partying and like, um, from the time I can remember, man, I was like, you know, focused in on that lifestyle and what those people were doing. And um, I just remember all my friends, older siblings and uncles and parents smoked weed and there was just always weed around. And um, man, I, I partaked in, in that, you know, were your parents like generation of love parents like hippie parents or no my parents were older so my dad when I was born was 40 and my mom was 36 and um you know I think they were one generation past all that my dad was like a big time athlete was in the military and um you know just a, a like a, a sports focused type jock dude okay you know, dude. Marine Corps no, he was in the army. He All played right. football in the army and uh, played like college, college, you know, level sports. Was like a real stud, and uh, he was a coach at Laguna Beach High School and the drafting and woodshop teacher. So, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, man, he was hard fucking core. He had all the kids like me in his classes, <laughs> but he was like, you know, definitely not a, a partier. Okay, right. Yeah. Is he still alive right now? Yeah, man. He lives over in an assisted living right here in La Mesa. He's, Fuck yeah. Yeah, he's, he's going to be 90 in November. That's <laughs> Stay yeah, up. He's a stud. That's yeah, right. still. Still getting yeah, it. Yeah. Awesome. So things were always awry. You're always hanging out with just that left path crowd, like everybody who's just getting into trouble. Yeah, you know, I think it, it it went from me being a follower to like kind of a leader in the neighborhood really fast. Like uh, on my street, there was two sets of brothers and um, the younger two were about a year or two older than me. And then they had brothers that were two years older than them. And so I got exposed to the stuff that like junior high kids were doing when I was in early elementary school. And so, um, you know, started smoking weed and, and trying to trying to steal alcohol from the parents and um, just doing the stuff we do, you know? Mm -hmm. Right I, in middle school? In elementary school. In elementary, like yeah, fifth grade, yeah. just yeah, getting like after fourth, it. fourth, fifth grade. I remember clearly, like, it was during the, um, 
you know, the Nancy Reagan, just oh, say no, yeah. era, man. And <laughs> this like is your brain. We'd, yeah, we'd have assemblies at school and they, you know, they'd be talking about drugs and asking questions. And like, you know, my hand was like, the you know, always up in the air with the answers. And I remember teachers like looking at me like, why does, how does this kid know all this stuff about drugs? And he just knows a little too much for how old he is. I had the same situation in like fifth grade on the East Coast. We had the DARE program, mm -hmm. drug, I forgot what, drug and alcohol resistance, something. But I had like printed off the, this list of every known street drug and brought it to class. And the cop and the cop teaching the class was like, where did you find this? And I was like, I don't know, on the Internet. <laughs> he was like. Yeah, thank you. And Lucky Labs. I'll never forget him saying that. And the Lucky Labs, whatever. But it was like four pages of just street drugs. And he was like looking at me like, oh, you're going to be a fucking problem. It's <laughs> funny. Yeah, that that's uh, relatable. Right. Were yeah. you in sports? I was like I was always, um, you know, interested, like, of course, with a, a dad that was so sports focused. He was really, you know, like trying to live vicariously through me and um it, uh, it, it kind of put a damper on it, you know, like I was always good at sports. Um, but, um, you know, I was kind of always told things like, well, when I was your age, I was able to do this, or, you know, you should be better at this age, or you should be taller than you are, or stronger than you are or whatever. Mm. And so, um, it just kind of ruined sports, you know, and it got to the point where I was like, well, maybe I should just play sports that my dad doesn't know anything about so that he can't tell me I'm doing it right or wrong. And so that's what I did kind of to get back at my dad. I played sports that he really didn't have interest in. Really? Yeah. Like so I, well, he was like a basketball, football, baseball guy. Like right. my dad, um, he grew up in um, Hawaii on the island of Oahu on the Pearl Harbor Naval Base. My grandfather was in the Navy during that whole Pearl Harbor era. Oh, shit. Yeah, they were actually Holy on, fuck. On, on a boat to the mainland when Pearl Harbor got bombed. And, Jeez. Uh, so my dad actually played AAA baseball, like semi-pro baseball at the age of 16. Wow. Uh, yeah. Oh, the expectations were already. Yeah, they were high. Yeah, they were know? really high. It's like my mom tells these stories about me being like three and four, and for Christmas my dad would just, you know, it was just all sports gear. Right. It was just like. Dude, the this guy is, can bear, you know, he's, he's not into it yet. Let's yeah. just calm down a little bit. Right. And, um, yeah, he was just kind of taking the fun out of it. No, I saw that. You always see that growing up where you're playing, like, Little League, and then there's some some kid who's like, I just want to do whatever, and his dad is just drilling him to death. And it just, like, you just want to give that your dad the finger and be like, ah, yeah. So what, what sports did you end up getting into? I, I got into soccer and, and was pretty good at soccer. You know, it just, it seemed like the obvious choice, you know, football, baseball, basketball, next, you know, soccer, mm. you know, and it, it, you know, I did play those other sports, but I just never really, um, I wasn't, my heart wasn't in it, you know, and, and, and that goes for soccer too, you know, it just, um, I wasn't as into it as my dad was. And a lot of it's because I had other interests that involved smoking weed and hanging out, you <laughs> trying know, to get at a uh, Susie rotten crotch, yeah, <laughs> staying away from home as much as I could. And uh, yeah. just kind of getting into that stuff. Definitely. So what were the eighties? Like I, I was on the swim team still <laughs> for me. They were great. Yeah. You know, by, by the eighties, you know, let me think. So I was in junior high and like, you know, relatively early, 
like 84, 85, I think I was in junior high. And like at that time, um, you know, my dad, we were living in San Clemente, but my dad brought me to school in Laguna Beach. And so like the history of Laguna Beach is like, um, you know, it's kind of like the La Jolla of Orange County. You know, like I always say if like Hillcrest, OB and La Jolla had a baby, that would be Laguna Beach. You know, like it's got the, it had the hippie thing going on. You know, there's um, obviously a lot of money there. It's a very yeah, opulent yeah, neighborhood. And then, um, yeah, it just is a very trippy place. And so when I was a kid in Laguna Beach, um, man, it was like the Grateful Dead show on Main Beach in Laguna. Like you could go down there and there was people that literally looked like, you know, they hadn't changed since <laughs> the sixties. Like, um, yes. You know, Timothy Leary had like a compound in Laguna beach and they were oh, making acid. There. So there's like a big drug culture, an artsy drug culture in that town. And so like when I was a kid, you could go down to main beach and, and buy acid and buy mushrooms and, and buy weed. And it was just readily available. No wow. shit. Yeah. I always thought of Laguna, like you just said, as like La Jolla, but like a, a little bit more hoity toity where like they, Every mom's got her Mercedes truck with a designer bag, and like that's maybe now. Yeah, that's I was about to say that's now. I mean, back then it was probably Cadillac. I mean, it's. It, <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't been back in a long time, but there definitely is like an artsy sort of hippy dippy vibe. It's it's, um, but but at the same time, a lot of money, yeah. a lot of money, right. and a lot of rich people, for yeah. sure. And so, um, it was it was an awesome place to grow up, and like, um, you know, I I got out of a lot of trouble just because of who my dad was. He taught at that he taught at Laguna Beach high school for like 40 years. And so he taught generations of people from Laguna. And so people, um, would hear my last name and, and know my dad. And, and so I, Oh, your coach's son. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yes, I, got, I am. I'll be I leaving got, now. <laughs> I got out of a little bit of trouble because of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I worked in your favor. Did. did. So do you ever take dad's wood shop class? I took his drafting class. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Wood shop, but drafting, I I've always been, um, artistically inclined like art and, and design and that stuff was kind of always came easy so I took my dad's class and um yeah it was awesome uh, you know there were some older kids at the school when I was a freshman that they're like dude we'll we'll pay you to put a hit of acid in your dad's mouth before school like when he's asleep and like so Wow. By the time you guys get here, he'll be fully peaking. That would be awesome. (laughs) We'll we'll pay you to do that. I'm just like, no, dude, I'm still highly in fear of my dad. He's like a big burly dude. I'm not going to give him acid. No, (laughs) it's not going to happen. And what if he goes on a rampage with a nail gun? Like you're, you're enemy number one, bro. Yeah. Yeah. God damn. But how fucking funny and crazy would that be? Jesus Christ. Hey, at least that's not on your four-step, you know what I mean? Yeah. No. Good God. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did consider it, but it, it, it didn't happen. So, graduated high school? I did. Not on time, but I, I, I got a GED. <laughs> you, got, you got it done. I got, yeah. I got her done. Yeah. yeah. All right. Was college ever on, on the schedule? Um, I started college a lot of times, yeah, but mainly <laughs> I would go to pick classes, and it would be like oh, ceramics, art. Um, maybe pick like, you know, a social science class or whatever that I would never go to. <laughs> and I, it just turned into like one of those situations where you meet your buddy, smoke weed, go to ceramics and then bail. But, you know, <laughs> that like, sounds awesome. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> You're was, having a good fucking it. time. <laughs> that was it. You know, um, never went anywhere with it for sure. Mm. So when did you bend the cr- corner of like, this is fun 
Or was there like an interim, uh, interim period where it was the party was still the party? It was a party for a long time. I mean, even when I had surpassed like what normal limitations mm-hmm. should be or would be for a normal person, like uh, you know, I think by the time I was in um, early tenth grade, I you know I had you know run the gamut from weed and drinking through all the hallucinogens into you know coke and um and speed and and um moving in that direction in 10th grade you're doing in 10th grade yeah the first time i smoked crack was the the night that i got my driver's license we yeah i packed a bunch of people in the chevy chevette that my dad had given me and we went to santa Ana and scored some crack (laughs) (laughs) that's all i can picture right now take it easy Straight to Santa Ana, baby. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't yeah. that cool. It was, <laughs> it was like, yeah, let's 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 go there, and hopefully we don't get killed. And and then right, and, yeah. <laughs> Santa Ana was rough. I mean, your, still is pretty rough. Did your dad ever catch on to what you're doing? It took a while for my parents to like. I mean, obviously know, he did, but back then, I mean, they you know, in high school, I started getting in trouble. You know, uh-huh. um, I got kicked out of Laguna Beach High School, Ooh. and so that's kind of when stuff turned a little bit. Um, say the least your dad was that's it, that didn't pretty, go for well yeah and the way I went out was pretty you know I went out with a bang nice yeah fuck yeah it was um I actually oh wait wrong one <laughs> we're not Does over finish him? Hold on. am I done no no, no. no. you know what fuck <laughs> B-Graph is alright guys alright it's been real alright I gotta get the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah so I got thrown out of Laguna Beach High School I I, I um, dumped a bucket wa- bucket of water over my math teacher's head <laughs> on the last day of school. Oh. I like dressed up like a ninja, like all in camouflage and a and a you know a ski mask, and I yes. snuck in and like crouched down behind these cabinets she had in front of her desk and 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 just dumped this bucket of water because she was just a bitch. I think she hated my dad, so she took it out on me. Sounds really, about right, you know. And so I I thought I'd get back at her and like. I don't know. Apparently, this one girl saw me wearing camouflage pants, and yeah, she, they put two and two together, and I got busted. Fuck, she yeah. pulled out the snitch and Wesson. She mm. snitched on yeah. me, man. And I, I remember getting this call from my mom, and she's, um, she's like, "Just don't go home. Your dad is gonna rip your head off." Like, oh, I'm no. like, "What are you talking about?" They're like, <laughs> "Oh, you know, oh, they know exactly what you did. You apparently you ruined all the final exam." grades the test scores and everybody's grades for the entire year when you dump that bucket of water over her head and like just she's like just come to my house me and you are gonna move like you you can't go back to laguna beach high school so i was like whoa (laughs) and that was kind of a turning point right there and that's when i ended up in temecula no shit so you and mom did bounce we bounced yeah we bounced and um I don't know, man. At that time, it seemed like all the kids in Temecula were from broken families that were getting in trouble, and they were there ready to raise hell and party. It was just like, I mean, I found a crew of guys that were ready to to rip shit up. Yes. Right? <laughs> That's when it started turning. Like eight, That was like 86 then? Uh, that was uh, 89. Okay. Yeah, I graduated in 91. Okay. So I, I ended up there on, in my 11th grade year. And um, it was on. Oh, yeah. yeah. And what was Temecula like then? Two-lane highway all the way to the 15? Yeah, I mean, it was obviously a lot sleepier, like that big mall that's there now off Yanez. Like, that was just all, like, sheep pastures. I mean, there yeah. was nothing there. And, like, 
the mountains, Duluth, that was just avocados and nothing else. Like there was some random homes up there, but not like it is now. Like we had free reign of that city and it was on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it was on. That mall was my first job in Temecula. I got promoted at Zoomies to be a, a store manager and that was the store. That was the area. And I had somebody come in and tell me that like this all used to be like grazing pastures for livestock. I'm like, yeah. Couldn't even, couldn't imagine it. I love, I love that history. You, you know, you see pictures of San Diego of like Mission Valley and it used to be all dairy land, yep. you know? Yeah. I think it's fucking rad. Crazy. Like even when I moved up there, I moved up there in 99 and it was, I remember my dad, we're driving down the road and he's like, Dustin, this is exactly how Claremont was when I was your age or, or growing up, you know? Yeah. And it's going to get fucking massive, you know? And it, it's funny because it, he's no longer here, but I, I would definitely say like, holy shit, dad, you're fucking right. Because that place is, fu- it's huge. Yeah, yeah. It's nuts. It's huge. It's crazy. Yeah. Wild. So you, you got a running crew now. I had a crew. Yeah. It was made up of like, um, of punk rockers and heavy metalers. And like, man, we were, we were out to fuck shit up. Search <laughs> and uh, destroy had just come out. Yeah. It was on. Yeah. yeah right. Metallica. Yep. That was it. Like I had hair down to my waist and, shit. Um, you know, Slayer and, and so wait, your mom back up a little bit. So your mom took you from Miguel, but you, were they still married? No, no, they had been divorced since I, yeah, I was in like seventh grade. Oh, oh okay. okay, all right. So that, yeah. that's where I was like, "Damn, your mom's a real G." She's like, "You're in trouble, and now I'm gonna get you the fuck We're out." We're bailing, of here. but <laughs> that's the kind of mom I have. Right. You know, she would right. do that. She probably would have done that, you know, for yeah. me because she's on my team. You know, oh, shout out to moms. Yeah, good old mom. Love her. Yeah, Love so her she uh, she she got me up and out of there. Nice. So, what is it like from? 89 to 91 we're just tearing shit down yeah just okay i'm i'm there i'm living with mom she's you know semi disconnected like oh my son's in high school i can i can go and you know live my life and he can live his life and it's all good and so i had a lot of freedom she'd take off a lot Uh, mine was the house you know where we'd have parties and um yeah it just it just progressed rapidly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know? Once you have free reign of the house, and yeah, you're like, yeah. I know mom's not going to be yeah. back till Monday. We're good. Yeah, yeah, it's, like, it's going to be high on. school parties. Here we go. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. So the Temecula days were when it just got, you know, it started, it went from being fun to, to being like a little more aggressive and a little more dark, you know, just because of the people and the things we were doing. And, and um, yeah, it just turned, man. So where would you have to go cop from, though? Hemet? Well, it, you know... It, Mead the, Valley. The, the days of, like, having <laughs> to go cop didn't really start till you know, I started getting strung out. It just seemed like everything was readily available. It just didn't seem like it was ever a struggle to get drugs, you know, ever, my whole life, you know, until the heroin, heroin days started. <laughs> then, <laughs> then um, you know, there was some of that, but it's like when, when I was younger, it just seemed like there was always a substance, you know, and until I found heroin and cocaine together <laughs> in a needle, it, anything was good. Everything. I'll, I'll do anything. I don't right. have any drug of choice. I will. I let's just get fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. Like what you got? Yeah, I'll do what it. What do you got? I'll do it. I'll yeah. do any combination. I'll do any singular drug. Just like let's just fucking let's get it on straight yeah. up. Yeah. So after you graduate, you get your GED. Are you staying at mom's house, or you're like, "Say la vie, I'm out." Yeah. So right around the time I got out of high school was when you know the heroin, cocaine days 
started sort of happening. So like freshly after graduating, I, I moved back to the beach for a little while to my dad's. He had forgiven me after two years <laughs> and um, I was there for a while and, and he just, you know, he'd come home and I'd just be fucking completely hammered, you know, on a daily basis. And finally he was just like, dude, son, you got to go, you know, right. that, that situation. So I ended up, you know, back in, in Temecula in like a flop house, you know, where like five or six or 10 of us lived in the same house. And, um, you know, for a while we had this house in rainbow, you know, where rainbow is Oh yeah, right there before you go through the border check. And like, um, man, like our, our job, the way we made money was to have these gigantic parties. And, and, um, one of us would buy the kegs of beer. One of us would buy blow. One of us would drive to Hemet and get these nitrous tanks, automotive nitrous tanks filled and we'd sell balloons and, um, Charge at the door. Charge at the door. One of us would charge at the door, and we all had our little hustle, man. Yeah. And and that's when it, when we had that house in rainbows, when it started really getting fucking loose. Like there was this <laughs> this chick down the road um, named Amy that was like kind of a biker skinhead chick, and she was really into meth. Like one of those people that did meth, but like it, it just didn't. She did it she's so nor- much. She's normal. <laughs> yeah, she yeah. did it so much. She like slept and ate on it. She looked normal. She just fucking had been on meth for forever. Right. But wasn't like twizzled out. <laughs> and, and so um, meth really came into the picture and we started getting really into crack. And so we would have these parties and we'd make our bundle and fucking we would one of us would go and score and we'd just lock ourselves in the room and smoke crack. Oh. You know? And the parties would just they would just take on their own life. We wouldn't even be there. You know, there'd be like people running our parties that weren't even part of the deal. You know, they didn't <laughs> even live there. And, um, they were like in charge of our parties and we'd be locked in the room, just smoking crap. Bell ringers <laughs> all wow. night long. Oh, oh wow. God. Yeah. I mean, well, you're going to have to. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of what led into the heroin was, you know, some, some veteran crack smoker was like, dude, you guys need to add an opiate to this. And it's some only, landing gear. Yeah. It's the only way to, you know, get yeah. shot out of a cannon and return to earth with a parachute. He like just made it. Oh my God. That makes so much sense. Like, so wow, right. Dude, God, you're my new guru. Yeah. 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 You just holy really shit. That. Please like, holy take shit. my money and teach me. Yeah. <laughs> and he did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> of course. And so, yeah, that's when, um, the copping situation started coming into play. And so we, first time doing heroin, was it, it's tar, right? Yeah, man. I'm an old school tar, you know, black tar, Mexican tar guy. Were you smoking it or is it straight to the rig? Uh, we we started snorting it, you know, mixing it with water in the spoon and, <laughs> Ooh. and dripping it. The, what do they call the, that the, shit? The drops. The drops. Dude. There's, yeah. that's, all, that's all you really do in jail. Yeah, that's, so my brother told me about that, and he called it something else. It was like some ridiculous well, name. Well, I'm, I'm sure that you have, I mean, it, there's a thousand names for everything. Right, the drops. Yeah, I heard that shit. Fucking burns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it tastes nasty. And it's and disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it worked. Yeah. You know, it really took the edge off when smoking crack for 36 hours or oh, whatever. God. Yeah, so we, um, yeah, that's how we got into the heroin, you know, and it was like me... And this other guy named Bob that really, you know, made a conscious decision to to put the crack aside and become heroin addicts. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're actually like, you know, we're going to move down to San Diego because it's way easier to score heroin down there. So, um, yeah, we left Rainbow and that was our mission. You know, we moved to downtown San Diego and 
and we were junkies. Uh, yeah, can you imagine being at that Rainbow House or just the stories of Rainbow House? Can uh, oh, man. I mean, I could I could go on and on about. <laughs> I got a funny story about that house. So like, <laughs> I'd done meth a bunch of times, right? And um, all the parties we had, we they were disco parties. Like we'd have disco music playing. Everyone was wearing disco outfits. That was like kind of our theme, right? So this one night. Amy, the skinhead biker chick, calls me down to her house, and she's like, you want to do some meth? I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. She's like, we're going to smoke it, though. And like, I'm like, all right. Like, is it like crack? Because I was like a crack guy. And she's like, no, it, it's it's different. Let's right. just smoke some. So I started smoking it. I'm twisting the bubble pipe and, like, <laughs> you know, blowing out these big hits. And, like, it just I never got the ringer, you know, like when I was smoking crack. And oh, so yeah. I kept smoking it, smoking it, smoking it. I don't know how many hits I took, but – um. So I'm like, uh, this shit's lame. It's not doing anything, right? So I, I I go back up to the disco party. I go into the living room. The music's playing. Everyone's dancing. And I'm like, uh, let's let's just start dancing. Let's have some fun. And so um, when I finally opened my eyes, it was like 1 in the afternoon the next day. There was nobody at the house. There was no music playing. And I had my eyes closed and was by myself in the living room dancing. And I just came out of this meth-induced blackout like this time warp and and it was just really intense fuck (laughs) you'd been dancing for 16 hours straight i I danced all night by myself and like i could have sworn it was like a a dance floor full of people and the music was playing but that was just all in my head you know wow i was totally alone in there dancing in the living room and um i was like wow that was kind of (laughs) strange all right so that's what happens when you do that yeah (laughs) Yeah, so don't hit it I'll, so many I'll, times. I'll, I'll stick to heroin and cocaine. <laughs> yeah, kind of know what's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah, right, it's right. not like a gift bag of what. Ooh, what do we have here? Oh, a fucking sixteen-hour time warp. Nope, not interested. <laughs> so downtown, what's that? So I've heard that San Diego, downtown San Diego, has changed ten x from what it once was through the nineties. Yep. It used to be like a real shithole that you didn't take any. You didn't go down to. There was no gas lamp. There was no East Village. There was no any of that. It was just like any given parking lot you could go and score crack. You know what I mean? It was like it was on, you know? I mean, of course, there were some nicer little parts, but downtown was like, you know, where, you know, people would go to the gas lamp. That was there. It was? There was like that one little strip of, you know, gas lamp bars, you know, on Broadway and all that shit. But the rest was like, you know, you don't you don't go over there. Right. So, mm-hmm. we're going, of course, that's where we went. <laughs> yeah. Where absolutely. did you say? 16th and Imperial? I'm on my way. Yeah, that's the spot. Yeah. We'll get an apartment right there. <laughs> yeah. We're going to make a lot of friends. We're going to invite them up to our house. We don't have anything that's worth anything, so it won't matter. Yeah. I so. remember downtown as a kid, and we would go there. My, I think I might have shared this before, but we would, my, my mom and stepdad would have a police scanner. And so, like, a fucking Saturday night would be like, let's go chase the fucking the action and so we would drive down to downtown and see a bunch of fucking just craziness you know people fucking carrying on and fucking shootings and stabbings and all this other shit but he also worked in downtown and i remember to go home back to ramona we would go up through golden hill and it was like the fucking ghetto oh yeah like golden hill was not like t-shirts and like clothes outside i just remember like clothes drying outside the windows you know what i mean like full-on fucking hood yeah it was the hood <laughs> you went to golden hills where we'd go to score heroin right it was like where we go to get 
get aged. I mean, now Golden Great. Hills just like fucking. That's it's all bougie, and gentrified. Yeah, 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 completely. Not then. <laughs> no, no, yeah, not then. <laughs> yeah, negatory. Yeah, so <laughs> we we made the conscious decision to come down here, and it was everything we had hoped. You know, <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> Got strung out. You know, and and uh, um, didn't know I was strung out. You know, like when I first started doing heroin. Uh, you know, I remember hearing like you know, old school junkies talk about being sick and being dope sick. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I thought it was like a ploy for free dope, <laughs> like a sympathy, you know, sympathy fix. Like, oh, oh, I'm sick. Give me a hit. And then, you know, I found out that it was real. You know, I was trying to maintain, you know, a little bit of a normal life. My brother owned this huge company and I was trying to work for him, this construction company. And um, I went to work one day and I had like a fix and I'm like, ah, I'm just going to wait till after work to do this. And, um, man, I was fucked off all day. Just laid in the back of the truck, couldn't function, couldn't do anything. Went home, decided to do that hit, and it all went away. And then I was like, oh, my God, I'm fucking strung out. Yeah. It's all true. I'm <sighs> fucking completely hooked on heroin. I'm a total junkie, and, and now I'm fucked. Yeah, now yeah. I'm stuck. It, yeah, it has me yeah. by the fucking balls. And like, you know, I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, their their experience with it and and people like go on for a long time not realizing how bad it was or gnarly it was. Like I knew from the start, like, oh my, I got to get off this shit. Like from the minute I started doing heroin, I was trying to get off of it, you know? Like mm. I always say, like, I'm never like the smartest guy in the room, but I always was smart enough to know that fucking there is no future in, in slamming dope. You know, and so um, I started trying to get off of it, you know, and that's when, you know, the party really ended. Yeah, it was over. It was not fun any longer. When I realized I didn't have the power of choice, like I, I'm completely physically addicted and like I have to do this shit to feel somewhat OK. Um, the party was done mm. and that's when it started getting bad. And um, yeah, that was a fucking decade before I actually stopped. Oh, you went a decade knowing a decade. that? Fuck. So into the 2000s. Yeah. Well, all the way through the 90s. From the early 90s, I got clean in 2002. Oh, shit. It was yeah. the turn of the century. Yeah, man. Fuck. And so it, it, it got crazy. So I, um, you know, it didn't take long until I decided I didn't want to spend money on rent anymore. So I made the conscious decision to, like, live in my car. Sure. And be a homeless, you know, street junkie yeah. sort of guy. And, yeah. Makes you know, sense. Did what street junkies do you know i um hawking anything that's not bolted down yeah i had my little lame lame ass poo butt hustles you know i'd go to the local hardware store and do the little <laughs> you know steal this and return it at the store down the road and you know the the mall you know steal you know clothing and belts and shit you know just the lame the, stuff the fucking typical the that's, typical that's like the street you know like we have friends like ozzy that was you know, river bottom gangster, you know what I mean? He would have a tent in river bottom, but that was his hustle. Like he would go and steal Ray-Bans and fucking Gucci belts and all this shit, you know, to return or sell. Yeah. Yeah. And there was guys that I hung out with that were doing like the Hillcrest booty hustle thing. And, um, Sheet. I mean, it was, you know, I started getting exposed to like what street junkie life could really be like. It was like, there was, people that were going the prostitution route. There were people that were going the little pinner hustle route. Sure. And then there were people going, you know, full bore, gnarly, <laughs> criminal, gnarly shit, 
Yeah. And um, I never got that deep into it. Um, but uh, it, it certainly didn't mean that it wasn't really bad and there wasn't a lot of desperation and a lot of, um, you know, went to county jail a couple times and um, it started getting bad, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Fucking downtown, I, I hear from them who all got locked up downtown in the early 2000s and like, I can only imagine how fucking raw it was then. Like, oh yeah, it was brutal. People that have been smoking crack for fucking six weeks straight. I mean, fuck. It was ugly, right? You know, it was ugly, and that's when you know people started dying. You know, people I was like close to, like in my little junky circle, just started freaking taking dirt naps. You know, I started getting exposed to like what addiction can really do. You know, and it. it Man, that crew I was talking about in Temecula, man, fucking more than half of those dudes are fucking dead. They're gone. Fuck. One of which just died uh, about six months ago. You know, I think he was a couple years older than me. And, like, I was just talking to someone. I'm like, God, man, James, he's like a cockroach. That guy just, you know, because I've been clean almost 20 years, and this guy never once got clean. Like, he's been going. Fuck. The whole time. I was going to say, is he? And heroin or just meth? Just heroin and well, meth and methadone and suboxone. Yeah. Like he got trapped in that. You're, that you're in that vicious. That's a vicious cycle. To he was in. like the head crackhead. You know, he yeah. was a little older than than me and and the other guys. And he was kind of the leader of our little crew. And he was one of the ones that was like not opposed to like you know stealing tractors or you know just yeah. out <laughs> to Macula. I mean, he had yeah. hustles. Like this guy would go for it. And um, he was like the last one out of that crew that finally kicked off like six months ago. Mm, fuck. Yeah. Due to his addiction. Yeah, straight up. Did a fix and, and, and I don't I don't think he OD'd. I think his body just quit. Right. You know? Enough's and, enough. Yeah. What I've learned from being around doctors in the industry is that like, you know, a lot of the people that die when they're older, it's not so much an overdose like meaning too much dope it's just your body just quits you can only take so much you know so it might not be a giant dose but it's just the dose that is 30 years of the final straw yeah you know it's just like there's not a lot of longevity for people that smoke speed and slam speed and smoke crack and shoot speed balls it's just you know we die young you know Mm -hmm. it's the name of the game for him to live to be 50 or 52 was like wow dude yeah holy shit he's like, he's, he's like actually 102 yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah, yeah. fuck yeah. Uh, uh, lived a dozen chickity check 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 just back at it again no big deal just you know learning as i go the memory filled up so there we were talking about the cockroach that wouldn't die and he died <laughs> yeah. he's gone yeah rest in power uh so you're living in a car. What kind of car was it? It was a Mazda minivan. One, <sighs> one, one of the many cars that my mom gave me. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. It sound, it's a perfect living in your car vehicle. Yeah, yeah. Any like sort I, of minivan. I, I ripped out all the back seats and tried to like build a bed back there. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I stayed in there some of the time. I slept under the Washington Street Bridge in Hills, Hillcrest for some calendar months. And, you know, just... Uh, that was Washington it, Street Bridge. Only the, well, the one that goes over the 163. Like oh, shit. Yeah, like if you turn off the 8, you're on the 163 going towards downtown. Like mm-hmm. When you pass under Washington Street, look up to the right. They got it all, you know, cemented off. You can't go under there now, but that was kind of the spot. 
The only wash park that I know of is a skate park that's closer to the end of Little Italy. Yeah. That was, so. That's, that's what, what I was like, fuck, were you there before it was a skate park? No, no. Oh, Washington yeah. Street, man. That's what I was going to ask. Like, where, where were you staying? Back in my day, Hillcrest was like where all the junkies were, man. There was just a lot of hustle in Hillcrest, you know, like I talked about. It was yeah, people would just hand money out. You yeah. know, you could do the panhandle thing or um, it just was a more liberal community. So more apt to like, oh, here, sure, yeah, here's a handout, right, you right. know. So that's just kind of where it all went down. And now, was it always like the kind of gentrified neighborhood it is? Or I mean, it was a little rougher around the edges. It, it was always a little, you know, artsy, but with a dark twist. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there was always, it was always the gay community and a little bit artsy, but there was like a big tr- drug community in that part of town, North Park, Hillcrest, you know, a lot of junkies back in the 90s. And, yeah. And probably still today. For sure. Yeah. North Park is full. Yeah. North Park yeah. Is, is gnarly. One yeah. second. God, what is go- For the third time. Oh, well, we're just going right back to yes, this. Yes. I finish him. Jesus <laughs> fuck. Fatality. <laughs> I just deleted so much shit off my hard drive. I just freed up 34 gigabytes of space. So we should be able to finish this and then. Uh, so for everybody that doesn't know what that means, it's a shit ton. It's a shit ton. And uh, <laughs> yeah, we maxed out my hard drive, my external hard drive, in the middle of Fred's episode. So no big deal. So oops, we're living in the Mazda minivan. Living in the minivan, living under bridges. Yeah. When is, because yeah, we were kind of closing in on like, and I, I had had enough. Did you ever try like methadone or anything like that? Yeah. So the methadone, that's how my parents found out I was a junkie. Like I, I you know, was in one of my moments where I, called mama you know i need help call mom you know um and i had let it slip that i was trying a medication to get off drugs and and she you know inquired as to what it was and i said methadone and of course she found out what methadone was so that's when you know the family started finding out that little little freddie was a junkie right (laughs) that'll do it yeah that's when um it got real bad was that the tail end too Oh no, that was the beginning. Like yeah. oh so, this God. is like early '90s. Oh yeah, that was like the beginning of, of you know. I had been doing heroin for you know a couple of years. Yeah, at that point, you know, d- did the street junkie sort of homeless thing, kind of you know toying with the idea of getting clean. You know, I'd drive out to my mom's in Palm Springs and try to kick and you know, you know hide in the room for a couple of days and mm-hmm. you know not tell her that i was detoxing off heroin and she'd be trying to get me to go shopping and out <sighs> out to dinner and yeah you know i'd take a shower and just be like a zombie yeah, trudging <laughs> around in full bore withdrawal Ugh. you know trying to act like it wasn't happening and and uh it was bad you know <sighs> Yeah, like I, I said, I mean, I I was trying to quit the minute I started. You know, unlike a lot of my friends, like never quitting was never on the radar for me. It was just like, fuck, I got to get off this shit. Like I just knew it was no good. Absolutely, it, there's yeah. nothing. There is by far nothing worse. Well, I mean, there's a few things that that are worse, but kicking dope is right there with them. Oh my god, I've probably kicked heroin, no exaggeration, at least. 50 times at least oh at least you're a glutton for pain in in, in the decade that i did heroin i fucking tried to quit more times than i could count and you kicked methadone 
I never stayed on methadone long enough to ha- to you know for it to get its you know grip on me. You know, I would do it for a while, and I'm like, yeah, I'd rather you know use that 15 bucks to buy more blow. Yeah, <laughs> I, not, one more bell ringer. Yeah, I've never kicked methadone, but I, I've kicked Suboxone, and it's fucking gnarly. Oh man, I'm so grateful I got clean before. You know, fucking I guess gnarly. Suboxone was maybe around when I got clean, but I never heard of it. Right. It was never presented to me as an option. Like, I'd go to detoxes and it would be like Valium or, you know, sure. whatever. Sit on your hands. Yeah, they just give you whatever meds that didn't really work. And, and um, you know, Librium, I think they gave yeah. me one time. And it just, you know, there's no, you play, you pay. Yep. You know, you fucking shoot I love dope. that saying. You, it's you so get, true. You get strung out, you, there's going to be some some pain involved. But goddamn, when you're going through it, you're like, fuck you. Because, that you know, that saying would be in my head, you big pussy. You know what I mean? I'm like, fuck this. Mm. Fuck. <laughs> what the fuck? And that's the thing about heroin. It's like, you kick, it's a, it's a good five days. I, you know, I'd always say, okay, well, it's going to be a gnarly fucking five days. Suboxone, you'll kick for the five days, and then like two weeks later, it fucking rears his ugly face again and i'm fucking in the in the bed fucking shaking my legs and like going motherfucker yeah it's like a time release dude Uh, that's what i heard it's 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 all bad fucking it is the devil yeah and it's so fucked up it's a goddamn sponsorship on facebook i just happened the other day go on facebook and there is the boxing as a sponsor a sponsored so, ad? A sponsored ad. What the I mean, fuck? I get it. There's a fucking major pandemic, right? But, dude, that's fucking just as fucking bad. I mean, they start they started handing that shit out like candy. Oh. I know people that literally weren't even heroin addicts, weren't even opiate addicts, just addicts that, like, didn't want to go to traditional recovery methods as, as, like, a way of stopping. And so they went to a doctor, and the doctors just throw them on Suboxone, even though they're not opiate addicts. What? Yeah, and a decade later, I know a guy that is still strung out on Suboxone, still takes it every day, oh. even though he was never strung out on opiates. That's fucking weird. You oh, know what's crazy? criminal, dude. My it, brother's it been in jail for, he's in prison now. He's been down for a year and a half. They're talking, he's like, yeah, I'm about to get on the Suboxone program. I'm like, why would you do that? Why would you do that? You've been removed from it for, quote unquote, a year and a half. Why would you hop on that shit? Because he, in his head, he's got nothing else to do. Why would I not get fucking loaded? Well, and also, you know, on the opposite end of from the recovery spectrum is the medical spectrum. And so there's a thing called harm reduction. And so everything is a mathematic calculation, you know, and everything's run by percentages. So they, you know, take percentages of addicts who try to get clean, you know, just strictly by going to meetings or they, you know, and then they they cross-reference it with junkies that they put on Suboxone and what the relapse rate is. And so if the rate of relapse for people on Suboxone is less than people trying to just use traditional methods, they call that harm reduction. Or because, smoking weed. Because statistically, you have a better chance of not relapsing if you're on Suboxone. <laughs> and so everything... That, that's how they calculate everything. And, you know, thus, um, Matt, medication-assisted treatment was born. So Why would you need to relapse if you're already high? On opiates. Yeah. You know? You're already you're on opiate. buprenorphine. You're good. Why do you need to go score? You're already on dope. Yeah. Right. But, hey. The, that side of things, I, I, 
guess. But the harm reduction where it's like, yeah, we're just smoking weed now, and that's harm reduction. I'm like, you're fucking ridiculous. Well, yeah, that, I, that is like a dope fiend that's taken that term and twisted it to fit his narrative his yeah. recovery plan for himself. You know? <laughs> yeah. Of course, a drug addict is going to say a drug is the solution for drug addiction. It makes perfect <laughs> yeah. sense. Right. So. I like that the outlook on it. So I I see this silver lining in in fucking doing heroin in the Mazda van down by the ri- in a van down by the river. Yeah, <laughs> that was me. You know, I tried the geographics. I tried you know everything. Where'd you bail to? I would leave and go usually to my mama's. Oh, you okay. know, run to mama. Peace Springs. Yeah, go to Palm Springs. One time I tried to move to Seattle in the 90s <laughs> to get away from <laughs> good time. Yeah, to yeah. get away from heroin and say, yeah. yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> yeah, it's, Grunge is just fucking crushing yeah, up in yeah, Seattle. It's like, oh, man. I'm actually maybe, going to the crocodile. Maybe I'll meet Kurt. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully he's got to connect. I, yeah. yeah, and I just ended up strung out living under the pike street bridge you know oh shit yeah i'm uh so on just june 3rd i'm going to the crocodile which is a venue that's like right there in the pike area uh-huh. i've never been to seattle i'm really excited i'm doing a disco night ironically that's awesome a little dj making a comeback yeah gimme gimme disco i did it at san diego uh house of blues on saturday and it was f- almost sold out it was Dude. insane i mean come on hmm. just Throw on some old BGs, dude. You can't argue with that. Stay love. I, I love mean, it. It's just too good. It's too good. I mean, when I was a kid growing up, my parents were like into disco. You know, like they right. would. My mom looked like Farrah Fawcett. My dad was a stud, and they'd get all dressed up in their polyester and disco fucking town, baby. It let's go. And I think when we used to have those disco parties, <sighs> a lot of my outfits were just taken directly from my dad's closet. Nice for sure. So, so clutch. Gotta love it. So what does rock bottom look like for you? Wow. I've had a few. Well, so. we can, we can, let's, let's peel back this onion a little bit more. Yeah. Let's talk about a few of them. Cause okay. I know there's a really fucking good one. Oh, there's a good <laughs> one. The, the, the last and final was a good one. Okay. But like at that point, uh, you know, the living under the bridge and in the van and sort of being the, you know, wannabe hustler right. sort of street dope fiend. Um, the end of that era was, um, you know, and the thing I didn't mention is that like my mom owned this really beautiful condo down in Mexico, down in Rosarito. And so she lived there part of the time and she lived in Palm Springs part of the time. So, um, at least once a month she would be driving through San Diego to go to Mexico and she would come and deliver money to me because I manipulated her and said like, Hey, if you don't give me some money, I'm going to do some really bad shit to get my dope. Fuck. Uh, yeah. So I basically blackmailed <laughs> yeah, mama. Threatened. Throwing th- yeah. <laughs> throwing that out to mom. So mom would, you know, come through, deliver some money that was supposed to last for the month, but it would really last, you know. The weekend. Four days or whatever, yeah. you know. And um, the rest of the time was just hustling and trying to stay high. And then one day mom, you know, I called mom like, hey, when are you making the delivery? And she's like, I'm not doing it anymore. You know, you're done. It's done. I met this doctor that lives upstairs in, in the building down in Mexico, and he's got this clinic down in Tijuana. He won a Nobel Prize. He's like an addiction. You know, he can cure your addiction, and um, I think you should do this treatment. But just so you know, I'm not giving you any more money. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, fuck. Fear-stricken. Yeah, <laughs> what am I going to do? 
What am I going to do? Well, yeah, I'm going to go to Mexico. Well, let's go meet this the doctor. fuck out of that doctor. <laughs> yeah, like, this <laughs> fucking up dude. my life. And his name was Dr. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter yeah. what his name was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> any, anyway, but. Um, Finish him. Yeah. Dr. Well, Doolittle motherfucker. <laughs> he's gone now. Um, All right. He meant well, I think. But no, I, I mean, mean, I'm sure he did. Anytime a doctor says I can cure addiction, we got, you know, oh, there's a red, a red flag. Yeah, but yeah. he had my mom sold. Right. And I will say that that, um, that situation kind of opened, it opened the door to recovery for me a little bit in, in a weird way. But uh, so she made that ultimatum, like you either get clean or you're on your own. And um, I'm like, just let me go till after new year's and then I'll, I'll go to treatment. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, um, the next day I got arrested and, uh, I was in Hillcrest sitting in my Mazda minivan, you know, with no clothes on freaking trying to shoot speed balls in my <laughs> underwear, you know, and throwing needles out the window, just out of my mind. Yeah. And I was fucking out of my mind. Right. And, um, I nodded out and when I, open my eyes, you know, spotlight cops, you know, this beautiful blonde police officer, this lady, you know, she was so pretty. I had never met a prettier police officer. <laughs> and, um, I tried to hit on her. It did, <laughs> didn't work, you know, um, cause I had track marks, you know, starting at my knuckles and ending at my chin. Fuck. My nickname was Spider-Man because, oh. you know, my tracks look like, you know, the Spider-Man suit. Wow. And, um, you know, junkie Jesus was, <laughs> was a nickname I had for a while. You know, oh, long hair and scrappy beard and kind of, I don't know, people say. Homeless looking. Homeless Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Like, homeless Jesus. Yeah, that kind of that kind of shit. But anyway, so I got arrested. Um, and uh, that was kind of the end of an era, man. You know, my mom picked me up from jail. Um, actually, no, she picked me up from a fellow junkie's house. She drew codependent mom drove right. to my friend's house gave him some money so that when i got out of jail i could score because the doctor actually said you should pick him up when he's not dope sick because he probably will run you know so let him get high and then bring him to the center and we'll start the treatment so um yeah she dropped off some dough and i got high one last time and we drove down to max and um that's uh where i met this doctor and they started this fancy treatment um it was an intravenous treatment of amino acids and vitamins it was supposed to like cure my neurotransmitters and make me um not an addict anymore and uh it didn't work <laughs> <laughs> but from there i landed in uh i, I landed back in laguna beach mm. believe it or not like i met these guys in the center and they were living in the sober living in laguna beach and um they convinced me to to move to a sober living because they're like, you probably don't stand a chance if you try to go back and live in the van or under the bridge. You know, you want to give yourself a fighting chance. So come to sober living. And I was like, okay, I mean, this seems like the easier, softer way. You know, I detoxed at this little, you know, clinic down in Max and, and I was kind of over the hump. And so um, I was like, yeah, why not? Let's just give it a try. And so I moved back to Laguna Beach, my kind of, hometown yeah right and that was the beginning of like landing in sober livings and and treatment and recovery this this treatment though i could have swore i watched like a show or something on it before probably what, did what, what, what would they give you 
It was amino acids, just like a, a heavy dose of amino acids, mm-hmm. and then just like B vitamins, all kinds of vitamins, and then they did did this other thing called ozone therapy, where they put air bo- air ozone in your bloodstream, mm-hmm. and uh, it's supposed to clean out your blood and right. you know just mm. yeah. One of those rock star treatments yeah. that doesn't, re- doesn't really work, but right. it's just something to do, I guess, and costs right. a lot of money. You know, my of mom course. paid a I ridiculous bet, yeah. amount I bet of money. She paid some a premium. Really, I mean, damn. yeah. Was this, was the sober living? Uh, were they actually fucking doing the deal? Yeah, man. It was like it was this really cool sober living up on the hill in Bougie Laguna Beach, and the guy running it was this icon in Laguna Beach. His name was Father Bob. He was called. He was basically the hippie priest of Laguna Beach. Like, okay. he he ran a church, but literally would, like, take acid mushrooms. He was, like, a, a hippie priest. Like, super spiritual um, drug addict guy. <laughs> and he ended up getting clean, and he had the sober living. And it was awesome. You know, it was really cool. I was back in Laguna. Um, I had some friends in recovery. Um, and it, it, it was, like, the beginning of something new. Sure. You know? And... Um, Obviously picked up a hostage, meaning a girlfriend, really yes. fast. And, yes. um, that's where uh, my life took a really strange twist. So I had 90 days clean, and um, I'm with this girl, and we're down downtown Laguna Beach, and we're in this bank, and this guy walks up to me, and he's like, um, he's like, are, are you, do you work in the fashion industry? And I said, no. And he said, do you, do you want to? And I'm like, well, what does that mean? And he's like, do you, have you ever thought about being a model? And I was like, uh, no, I, you know, I just climbed out from under the bridge a couple <laughs> months ago, right. but, um, what are we talking about? And he's like, well, you got an interesting look. Like you should call these people. Like I know these people in LA. And so I'm like, I got nothing to lose. <laughs> you know, I literally have nothing to lose. Everything I own is, you know, in the drawers up at the sober living. So, um, I called this place and it turned out to be an agency up in LA and, um, drove up there and walked in and I'm like, yeah, Hey, I'm the guy that called. And they're like, um, yeah, you're not what we're looking for, but call this number. And so I'm like, all right, I, you know, I'm already up here. And so I called this other agency and went over there and I walked in and they were just like all about me. You know, they loved me. They're like, oh, we're going to set up a test shoot and, you know, you're going to, you're going to get lots of work and and it's going to be awesome for you. And I'm like, okay, sounds like a bunch of bullshit. Pretty soon they're going to ask me for a bunch of money and it's going to be some kind of scam. Yeah, some scheme. (laughs) And, and it wasn't, you know, they, they paid for a test shoot and, um, they got the pictures back and they're like, dude, we really like your look. We're going to, um, we're going to show your pictures to this guy, this really really fancy photographer in the industry like one of the top photographers at the time and and the guy just took a liking to me and um within 30 days i had made a quarter of a million dollars what yeah what the fuck whoa 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 whoa. hold on (laughs) yeah so you're a modeling yeah i i i got booked for the dolce and gabbana fragrance campaign and um Man, I fucking made a lot of money, you know. And what one, the fuck? You day. didn't tell me about this. I had no, dude, I had no idea. Yeah, I, I, you can still find the pictures. I on was the about internet, to say, man. can we still find the pictures? Yeah, I could pull it up. Oh, um, and, but this is this is 2002. This is the first time you got clean. No, this is this is 
this is probably the end of the 90s. Okay. You know, it's like... 99. Yeah, I wasn't able... Oh, the modeling days were when it got real bad. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, That's what I was no, like. So, like, for the longest time, like, I, I was convinced that my problems were tied to my lack of money. Oh. You know what I mean? Like, sure. fuck, if I could just fund this operation, yeah, I could make this work. This would be manageable. I wouldn't have to do this. I wouldn't have to sleep under bridges. I wouldn't have to do these fucking poo butt hustles to get high. I wouldn't have to rely yeah. on mom. Right. If I had money, I could make this work, you know? And, um, lo and behold, money was not the problem. Um, at that point, I, I got to the point where money no longer was the issue, you know? So I, I, I got booked on this job. They flew me to Europe. I did the photo shoot and suddenly I'm sitting on a six figure bank account. What Damn. the fuck? And, uh, I um I quickly booked another job. I did a, a TV commercial for Miller Genuine Draft, and then I did a Hallmark TV commercial. I, I started booking jobs. And, like, the first year, I, I made a ridiculous amount of money. Right. And Damn. After, like, six months, they, they moved me over to Europe, and I was fucking living like a rock star. And getting loaded. And I made the conscious decision <laughs> to start getting loaded. Over in Europe? Over and well, no, before I left, I, I, I drank one time, you know, I think I, I had like nine months clean and, wow. uh, they're like, you know, you're going to go and live in Paris and, and, um, yeah. Wow. This is the beginning of something big. And I was like, celebration. Yeah, it's on. Let's <laughs> right. party. Yeah. So, uh, I fly into Paris and they, I, I, I fly into Paris. I stay in a hotel. I did this runway show and then they ushered me over to this model's apartment. Like I had this, I, there was this DJ in, in Paris and he rented out one of his rooms to, to models to, you know, that were with the agency I was with. And so, um, they brought me to his pad and, you know, we were hanging out and, uh, first night there. And he was like, you want to snort a line? And I'm like, what is it? And he's like, it's Persian Brown. And I was like, Dude, this fucking guy has got heroin. Yeah, like what? Like casually? <laughs> like yeah. Well, first he like made this little joke. He's like, you know, I called your agency and I told him I don't know if I want you to stay here because it looks like you have tracks on your arms. And I was like, dude, my cover is blown. Oh, you know, shit. like I had been clean for like clean, meaning not doing heroin, and you know, wore long sleeves all the time because I was still a little bit scarred up. Yeah, you know, and and um, I was like, is this guy? Turns out he was like fucking with me. He was just kind of, you know, feeling me out to see if I was like down with, you know, really partying. Right. And um, it turns out I was. <laughs> it, it turned me on to, to some Persian brown, and um, and and here we go again, dude. I'm amazed, dude. And First, we have a fucking runway model on the show. What was that Let's like? Fucking go. What's that life like? Because you're like Jesus. very laid back, and I feel like that's a very high strung world. It just it never my person. I'm just I was never into it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was kind of like I always felt like an imposter. You know what I mean? Trying to walk around acting as if, and really I just yeah. wanted to hang out at the beach. You know, yeah. right? Just um, it was like a different lifestyle, man. Right. A lot of. Um, hurry up and go it was like some of the most fearful times of my life because i was fucking like after i got strung out and after i came back from europe it was like um you know any given time of day 
you know, could be three in the morning, could be nine at night. You could get a call from the agency that says, dude, go down to the airport. Like you're booked on this flight, you're booked for this job, you know, get your stuff and head down there. And so I lived in fear of having to fucking stay well, you know, in foreign countries and get on smuggle dope on planes. It was either like, (laughs) I either have to smuggle dope or I have to score Right when I get to this place, I've never been. Oh, and that's and that's scary on itself. Yeah, I mean, but just, for a, for a, for a dope fiend, we can literally go anywhere in the world and find dope. It's just the situational things that we're going to get into. The situation could get really fucking bad. It yeah, yeah. and it did. You know, yeah. it did. It's just so it was like I lived in fear for a long time, man. And um, you know, that wasn't fun. Our buddy Stefan, his mom is German, and he lived in Munich or outside of there. And he talked about copying in Germany was like you go to the train station and find the Russian or the like Armenian dude, and they're always at the train station, and that's where you go to cop. My move was always look for the local methadone clinic. You know, just look up the methadone clinic in whatever town you're in, and you can always find someone to score you. Score right. You dope. Yeah, because yeah, it's like, oh, hey, that, that I got sense. the money. Take me to the spot. Let's go. Yeah. 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 So anyway, back and forth between Europe and, and trying to work. And, it, you know, that whole part of my story was like I, I kind of came out with a bang in that industry. And it just fizzled out from there as, as I got more and more gnarly into my addiction. And um, the money definitely um, fueled the... It hastened the the final end of the demise. career. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the end of it all was, and, was hastened. And meanwhile, your mom's playing golf in Palm Springs. Like, yes, my my son Freddie, he's a model right now. He's in Spain. And there was that. Yeah. I did live in Spain, Barcelona. Sparcy. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was in Barcelona Bro, for a that's while. That's fucking man. crazy, Fred. Dude, Barcelona is an interesting place. They had a bus. There's an area in Barcelona called La Ramblas, and it's kind of the artsy little little dope fiend area. You know, the touristy, artsy little kind of street down by the um, kind of down by the ocean in, in Barcelona. And there was a bus, the number thirty three bus, and it had two stops. It left La Ramblas. It went around the point, stopped at one place. You know, one bus stop picked up people. And its final destination was this Moroccan shanty town that was like where you go to get dope and crack. It was just, it was like something out of a movie. Really? I mean, it was like the junkie bus. Every person on that bus was strung out and dope sick trying to get to the Moroccan village (laughs) to get their shit. Wow. And I mean, it was something out of a movie. Every apartment didn't have a door. They all just had like sheets covering the doors. And it was like, it was... It was pretty creepy. Right. You know, and everyone's sick on the bus. <laughs> everyone on the bus was dope sick. Ha. And everyone on the bus on the way back was just gout out. <laughs> yeah. And so surrounding this, you know, ghetto, the drug ghetto in Barcelona um, was this big open field. And they had um, like a needle exchange sort of um, bus like parked there. So you go, you check in with the bus, you'd give them your passport because Barcelona is kind of a melting pot. People come from all over the world. So they take people's passports, give you, you know, a kit, rigs, and, you know, a little cap to cook up in. And then when you're done fixing, they give you your passport back and you go on your way. If you don't come looking for your passport, then they come looking for you. You know, is that guy OD'd in the dirt somewhere? 
And um, wow, that was kind of how it went. <laughs> I didn't know if it was like the police are coming to get your ass or, but no, they're just making sure that you don't die. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like a needle exchange thing here, just making sure. sure everyone's, you know, got access to needles and trying to keep people as safe as, as can be, you know. And wow. I, I ended up ODing twice in Spain because that's when I first got introduced to China White. Was like doing that a little bit. So the what was the difference between the Persian and the China White? Uh, the like the Persian brown was more like tar. You know, it was yeah. brown. It was like kind of like blow dope. You know that shit that was like powdery until you put it in your hand and then it sort of muck up. Yeah, muck up or crystallizes. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that. But the China White was just a whole different thing in itself. That's all I've ever done. China White. Yeah, I didn't like it. It wasn't, uh, I, I was, I'm like a tar guy, man. I'm old school. Really? Yeah. I, although I did OD, I, I never, I wasn't like a guy that OD'd all the time, but I did OD twice in Barcelona. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah. God. Getting, getting. Favorite European city. I liked Barcelona, man. My, you know, this is a, a cry and shame, but like my whole time in Europe, um, it was just darkness, man. It mm. was like I lived this double life, like I had this agency I'd have to report to, and I was trying to book jobs, and, you know, I had a really bad attitude, you know, because Naturally. I'm, I'm strung out, and, like, you know, you said, I'm, I'm a laid-back guy, but, dude, you add cocaine and heroin, and I'm fucking really high-strung and aggressive. You know? <laughs> I, I, right. you know, I am. I'm just a nightmare, you know, and I have a bad attitude, and so that doesn't, you know... Models are a dime a dozen. There's a million of them out there trying to get jobs. And if you're a dick, you're not getting jobs. It's just like any other career. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're not, um, if you're not what people are looking for, you know, Mm -hmm. they send you on your way and attitude has a lot to do with that, you know, and I just had a bad attitude. That'll do it. How long did this show go for? The modeling? Yeah. It went for the better part of my twenties. So it was like, you know, from like 24 to 30. God, the amount of money. Jesus fuck. Well, as I said, I made a lot of money in the beginning and it yeah. slowly fizzled <laughs> yeah. out. You know, I became more and more unavailable. Started trying to check into rehabs. I'd disappear and just, you know, mm-hmm. it was a nightmare. Yeah, naturally that, I mean, it just, that's how it goes. Uh, yeah, just the progression. Brendan Pagan. <laughs> Hello. Hi, how you doing? Do not disturb is on. <laughs> <laughs> now. There we go. I'm not to call him back. Sorry, sorry, dog. I'm gonna have to call you back. <laughs> so you're closing in on your 30s, and it, and we're getting towards like this is the one thing I heard about. You had a pick line installed. I did. So I did. where does that? How far out are we from so, that when you're in Europe? So when I talked about that miracle cure, I got down in TJ that they put, they pump through your bloodstream. Um, at that point I, I didn't have any veins. So the doctor, they, they sent me over to this clinic in TJ and put a catheter in my chest to give me this treatment. Right. And then when the treatment was over, they took the catheter out and, um, I was like, God, that would have been convenient when I was getting loaded. And so I ended up revisiting that clinic, um, at the end, you know, when it finally all came to a head, I landed back in that clinic in Tijuana and got another catheter put in and I finished out my using, um, with a subclavian catheter. Yeah. That I was shooting heroin and cocaine into. (laughs) Fuck. Yeah, man. (laughs) How direct of a hit is that? (laughs) 
that's when it started getting really bad and really scary. I mean, one of the many times, I mean, there was a lot of years that were really scary for me. Like I said earlier, like a lot of my friends started dropping, Yeah, you know, and I, I got to this place when I was modeling where, um, I was living in New York and, um, fuck man, I just had anxiety and fear all the time. Like, I, and, and, and of course this is like a dope fiend solution to a drug problem. Like I, I was afraid to go to sleep cause I thought I wasn't going to wake up. Right. And so my solution was take enough Xanax to black out so that I, I could naturally fall asleep without having to think about falling asleep. Right. Which is just ridiculous. Right. Right. It's ridiculous. But I'd, I'd roll around with one of those Altoid tins filled to the top with like Klonopins and Xanax and, and Somas and just, you know, in the, end, in the end, pills really came into play heavily. And um, I had a monster tolerance because I had I had money, you know, and um, when I was in California, I was I was I would always move back to Laguna Beach and I was I was scoring in Santa Ana. And at that time you could get an eight ball of tar for 90 bucks. <laughs> Woo! Party yeah. time. So I'd go to Santa Ana and get like 10 eight balls of black and, you know, a bunch of white. You have a softball size glob of and fucking just, heroin. Like I just, it got to the point where I stopped even measuring the amounts I was doing. I would just throw giant chunks and spoons and, and dump blow in and mix it up with my thumb. And, and just, there was just no gauge you know what i mean it was just like i had more dope than i could do Fuck. and and my tolerance through um, the roof just through the roof yeah, and God it, damn. it just i don't know if this happened to you guys but for me it, it reached a point where it was just like it was either not enough or way too much every fucking time mm-hmm. i i had no gauge on how much dope to do mm-hmm. and like i only knew when um it wasn't enough and then I would do too much and fucking yeah. I would go nuts. Like I got to a point where I was doing so much blow that like I was out of my mind, you know, and I was trying to cure that with Xanax and fucking, I would go into these blackouts, man, and do shit that was just, you know, Xanax is a dangerous one. Putting my life at risk, you know, like I came out of a blackout one time and I was on the roof of a building that I was living in, uh, you know, in, in New York and I was walking on the ledge. I had popped up on the ledge and I had a camera and I was like taking pictures of my feet, like standing on an 11 story building up on the ledge. (sighs) And then, you know, I, I'd come out of blackouts in the middle of the night with my underwear on over my pants and no shirt, no shoes in the middle of winter in New York, like running against traffic. And Oh my, I mean, just that was shit like that started occurring like on a sick one on, on a daily, you know, just, just <laughs> gnarly. Yeah. That's, and like, you've seen the spectrum of like low bottom and then high bottom fucking. Yeah. And it just, it's not, none of it's fun. Park bench to park Avenue. Fuck. And ultimately back to park bench. <laughs> <laughs> full circle, baby. Yeah. I went full circle, man. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I got, I hightailed it out of Europe and, and what I was saying earlier, man, is it, I just, that whole experience, man, it could have been the experience of my life. Like who knows what would have happened if like I wasn't, if I would have stayed clean, right. you know, like who knows where that, that opportunity would have taken me, but fucking dope, man, mm-hmm. is more important, paramount. It'll take everything. It sure did. So the yeah. final bottom. So the final bottom, I, I come back, um, 
I'm barely working. I'm barely showing up at castings. I'm fucking living in Laguna Beach, and um, it all comes to a head. I fucking I'm like I gotta I gotta make a change. I gotta do something. So I peeled out down to my mom's condo in Mexico, and uh, that's when I was like, hey. I should revisit that clinic and get a <laughs> catheter. Yeah. That's the problem. I don't, you know, I don't have a direct access to like shooting, you know, it was yeah. constant. Like muscling. I've blown out every vein I've got. I had no veins. You I was muscling like everything, muscling everything. And you know, it just was getting bad and ugly. And so yeah. I got that catheter put in and, um, shit got loose. Man. <laughs> it got real bad. You know, I, um, and it was just hanging out of your chest. Yeah. So it, it's called a subclavian catheter. So they, puncture it through your chest plate and i guess there's a what's called the subclavian vein like a big ass vein that goes into your heart mm-hmm. and they plug it into that and so basically i had this little plastic thing on my chest that was stitched to my chest and a tube coming out and then it had a little a port with a little screw on it and so i would buy these rigs and tj and rosarito that were like that big around they look like horse syringes yeah and really huge, not like your normal syringe. And you could screw the the point off of it, and they would screw right into that port. Correct. And so, I would fucking mix up these big hits and just bam, bam, bam. Good God! Right yeah. to the heart, dude. Right to the heart. Oh. And I couldn't, I couldn't do enough dope. And you're doing speedballs. Speedball. Oh my God. Yeah, and it was just every hit, I overshot the mark. And it was just like, it got to the point where the thing that was my solution was my problem, dude, you know, and every hit I did made all my problems, um, you know, forefront, like instead of erasing your problems and your emotions, it fucking made everything worse. And the paranoia just got so bad. You know, I would be standing on furniture with my ear up against the air conditioner vent and all yeah. I was hearing was walkie-talkies and voices, and even <sighs> they were coming to get me. And that lasted for like eight months. Oh, that's, a, that's an eternity. Eight months. It really is. In, in this condo. Shooting in into your chest? Yeah. Oh, my. In your mom's condo? In my mom's condo. My mom was married to this really wealthy guy, and they were on this, like, world you know, tour. Tour, <laughs> you know, going around doing their thing. And I was in this condo, man, and I fucking turned it into a shooting gallery. Ugh. This beautiful condo on the on the coast, this high rise down there, right at K thirty eight, a real famous surf spot down there. And um man, I was held up in that place and uh it got fucking ugly. I can only imagine. Yeah. And yeah. you're just burning up what what you got left. I mean, I had dough. I had like uncashed checks. I was getting residual checks sent to my mom's oh, house from TV fuck. commercials. Um, so the money never stopped. There was money. It wasn't the money. I just got to the point where I just couldn't do enough. I I couldn't do enough, and every hit I did just made everything worse. It was just like damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. Like I was just so miserable. And so depressed and so scared and had so much anxiety and so much fear. And that Mm. just went on for what seemed like an eternity, you know. And um, I I had no one to put me in check. I was living by myself in this condo in Mex, shooting into a catheter, taking handfuls of pills. 
And of course, my dealer that's living in a trailer down in Puerto Nuevo is not going to be like, hey, dude, you're not looking so hot. Yeah, no. You know? <laughs> Absolutely so, not. You're the number one customer. Yeah, I was their favorite guy. Yeah. And so um, I ended up getting arrested down in Mexico. I, I, I drove to Puerto Nuevo. I scored a bunch of dope. I had it wrapped in a napkin in my pocket. I'm going to leave, you know, to jam back to the condo to score. And I, I bumped the back of this car. And um, it was like a Mexican family. They got out, and I tried to buy my way out of it, and, and it didn't work, and the cops showed up. And they fucking towed my truck, and they put me to, in jail in Rosarito. And um, they're like, uh, you need to pay us $1,000, and we'll let you out. And I was like, mm, I'm not going to do that. And so I sat in jail for about 15 minutes and then i'm like okay yeah we can do that let's go to, let's go to the atm I'll, I'll give you some dough yeah and and mind you i had a pocket full of heroin and cocaine they never searched me which is the weirdest thing <laughs> so they let me out they gave me my truck back i gave them a thousand bucks drove back to puerto nuevo because i'm like dude i'm gonna need way more dope than what i already have because this is turning out to be a shit day already been in mexican jail <laughs> and so um i scored some more dope and uh, i ended up doing it in the bathroom of one of the little lobster restaurants and got fucking super gout out and i started nodding out on the drive back to the condo and i sideswiped a couple cars while i was driving in mm. max and um i go to pull into the little gated community where my mom's condo was and i freaking you know crash the side of the you know the other side of the truck as i'm like trying to come through the gate and the the, oh. the, gut, the guard at the gate is like waving me down and i get down to the garage and i pull pull the truck in to try to hide from the cops that are obviously on their way because i just sideswiped two cars and um i run up to the condo truck was totaled you know i took out one whole side by sideswiping a couple cars and I took out the other side of the car trying to get in the gate and get in the garage. So my truck's totaled. It's fucking in the garage. And all of a sudden there's a knock at the door. And um, it's the security guard from the gate. And he's like, dude, the cops are out there. If you don't give me $2,000, I'm going to let them in. So I'm like, oh, okay, no problem. So we went to the ATM later that night. I paid him another $2,000. So that night got kind of expensive. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And luckily I had the money, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. You're very lucky. Very lucky. <laughs> so anyway, oh. that was like, I was kind of like, dude, this is just getting too, too bad, too gnarly. I need to stop. I need to quit. So I, um, made a conscious decision to start detoxing, oh. you know, and I'm by myself in this condo. I had been on like a three year run. Like I, you know, didn't miss a day mm -hmm. for years. A thousand days. A lot of days. A lot of days, you know, a three year run's a pretty good little stretch. Very, Fuck yeah. Very you know, good. for me, it was like I had a number of those. Like there was probably two, two, two runs that were that long in that decade where I was really fucking strung out and going hard on heroin. And then a lot of short runs and a lot of trying to detox. But, you know, that happened to be at the end of a three year run. And, um, man, I was taking copiate copious amounts of um of pills to go with that heroin man and um when i started detoxing dude fucking it started crashing down mentally for me and um i just really got to the point where i was like um i'm just i'm just done with this mm -hmm. you know and uh 
you know, there's a book about recovery that talks about the jumping off place. And, um, I was there, dude, I couldn't live with it and I couldn't live without it. And I was literally at the jumping off place, like at on the 10th story, standing on the balcony, fucking ready to take a just, header. Just going for <sighs> it. Like just done, man. I'm just like, I just can't picture my life with, with dope anymore. Cause it hasn't worked for a decade and I can't picture my life without it. I don't know what to do, you know? And, um, I had, you know, what we call a moment of clarity, you know, I, it was like enlightenment for a dope fiend, you know, everything that didn't make sense suddenly made sense. Like I knew that dope was never going to work in any combination. Like there was, I was never, ever going to be able to rewind the tape, which is, you know, the, the narrative that runs in my head and, and ran in my head for a decade, like just go back to smoking weed and drinking. Yeah. You know, and a lot of my relapses have started with that. That's it. You can just smoke weed, you know, the disease that tries to convince you that you don't have a disease and it's going to be okay. And, um, I knew that was never going to work. I knew that, um, heroin and cocaine was definitely never going to work. And that, um, I had to try to find a new way to live. It was that simple. And, you know, I'd been in and out of recovery fellowships and been in rehab and um never quite done you know what I mean always trying to do it my way always trying to manipulate whatever program I was in to fit how I thought it should be and like it just dawned on me that like man I was gonna have to find someone that had found a way out and just fucking do what they did you know but how do you put that into play, you know? And so I'm standing there and I'm contemplating, you know, diving off the balcony or, you know, what's my other option? And, you know, I, I guess I had listened a little bit in times of recovery or in sober living. And it was like, if when an addict needs help, you reach out to another addict in recovery. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did, you know? And I, I made this call and it happened to be, um, to an ex-girlfriend, that girlfriend that I had right when I moved back to Laguna beach and was in that sober living, the hostage, the hostage. The, the the hostage. hostage. Yeah. That yeah. you became a model and bounced on. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what I did. Yeah, I did. And, um, that girl ended up saving my fucking life. Wow. Wow. She ended up saving my life. And she had stayed clean through the whole thing. She had stayed clean up to that point. Oh, okay. Yeah, and so I called her, and I was, you know, um, in a state of panic, you know, <laughs> suicidal, sure. and out of my mind, and, and um, I made a call and asked for help, and she, she fucking drove down there, you know, and um, I'll never forget this moment. I, she knocked on the door, and uh, I opened the door, and she just looked at me and turned white and just started bawling. Mm. She just started crying. And she's like, have you fucking looked in the mirror? Like, have you looked in the mirror anytime recently? And I'm like, well, I try not to, you know, <laughs> I go in the bathroom and I try not to look up, you know, I just, why? And she's like, dude, you fucking, I've never seen someone upright looking the way you look. Like you're just, you're a corpse, dude. 
you know, and I'm a, I'm a thin guy. I'm a pretty yeah. slender guy. Like I weighed 50 pounds less than I weigh now. Oh my. Oh, you know, when I checked into rehab, I think right now I'm like 175, 178. I was like 122. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> fucking nothing skeletor. to you. Dude, yeah. Skin and bones, dude. Literally skin and bones. <laughs> so she said that and I, I walked in the bathroom and I fucking looked at myself and I was just like, oh my God. And like I was able, you know, to see the progression right in front of me. It was undeniable. I was just like, oh my God. Like, wow. You know, and it, it, it was never more clear that like, if I didn't get clean, it was going to be all bad. So I, I walked back out of the bathroom and I said, what, I, you know, fuck, what do you think? And she's like, I think you're going to die, you know? And I'm like, I, I think I'm going to die too. I, I, I really do. Like, um, what should I do? And she said, if there is not a God or something out there that cares directly about you and your problem with drugs, you're going to fucking die. That's it. I can't help you. Your mom can't help you. You definitely can't help you. You're not going to be able to fucking think your way out of this. Like, dude, it's it's do or die at this point. And uh, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And she's like, um, she said something to me that I'll never forget. And it's the first thing about recovery that anyone said to me that just fucking hit home. And mind you, I'd sat in meetings my whole life. I have one of my brothers is an addict, you know, and when I was a little kid, he was in recovery. You know, and at one point he had like 25 years clean. Wow. Yeah. And um, so I sat in meetings when I was a little kid, man. And I sat in meetings as a juvenile, you know, and as an adult trying to get clean. And I just, nothing penetrated. No, I didn't hear the message. But this chick, you know, she carried a strong message to me. And she said, um, you suffer from a disease that only a spiritual experience can conquer. And I was like, fuck, dude, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I've tried every other imaginable method except turning to something bigger than me. And like, I just, at that point, I was so desperate. I did not have a problem with the God concept. You know, it was just like, okay, that makes sense. What, what do I do? And she's like, go in that back room and get on your knees and fucking just beg for a miracle. And if you don't get one, you're going to die and it's going to happen soon. And, um, fuck that's, that's harsh. She was fucking brutally honest with me, but it was, it was at that point, you know, it was like, you know, you still have a relationship with her. No, but like leading up to this podcast today, I was like, fuck, I should see where she's at. And we're like connected in a really strange way. Like after later on we talked and like, it's so weird because she like found me and, and uh, called me at one point and she's like, I have a daughter now and um, she's born on your birthday. And I was like, wow, that's a trip. And I'm wow. like, I have a daughter now too. And she's like, Oh, when's her birthday? And I said, July 25th. And she's like, that's my birthday. Holy. Wow. Yeah. I just and got so fucking she, goosebumps. She dude. has a child born on my birthday and I have a child born on her birthday, which is just, it's just weird. Yeah. It's just weird. Cosmic. It's, yeah, it's just, I don't, I don't know how to explain that, but, um, Dude, anyway, would you say that you had an experience, you had a spiritual experience had, in that moment? Dude, I'm one of the lucky ones, man. 
I fucking God revealed himself. And it wasn't like someone showed up, you know, but I got on my knees, fucking hopeless, scared, ready to dive off the 10th story balcony. And uh, when I came out of that room, man, and mind you, I'd started detoxing. I called her, you know, after it was day two. Anyone that's detoxed off heroin knows day two is when it starts getting loose. (laughs) It starts getting bad on day two. And so that's when I called her. And so um, I was on day two and I went in that room and I fucking, I don't remember what I said, but I just remember that like when I got up, man, I had a sense of direction like I had never had before. And uh, all that anxiety and fear was gone. And I knew that like if I just did what I was told, I stood a chance. I just got humbled to the point of being willing to follow direction and let someone guide me, you know? And so I came out of the room and um, I sat down and I said, look, something happened to me that I can't explain. Like I feel different. I feel a little bit of hope. Like I feel a little bit safe now, but like I know that I need way more help. Like this is just the beginning, you know? And she's like, okay what do you need? And and I'm like, I I need to go to treatment. Like I really need to go to treatment and be locked away. I need to be sequestered and removed from the situation. And like, you know, I, I own rehabs and like, I'll be the first to say, I don't think going to rehab makes someone immune from getting loaded. There's no miracle cure. There's no magic. But what it does is it removes you from the situation long enough for recovery to take hold if you're ready. And I was fucking ready. Mm-hmm. I was done. Like I knew that drugs and alcohol were never going to work. And so um, I was open to recovery. And um, so I said, I want to go to the Scripps McDonald Center. And, and I don't even know how I knew that name. You know, it just like came out of my mouth. And so she called my mom. My mom drove all the way from Palm Springs. And they took me to the Scripps La Jolla McDonald Center. And um, we, you know, we drove from Rosarito all the way to La Jolla and um, sat in the, the line to get out of Mexico. And it was like, it was like an out-of-body experience. Like I just, it just was like that. And like I kind of came to and um, I'm like, where are we? And they're like, we're at the McDonald's center, you know, and there was that period of time also that my mom had to drive all the way down to Mexico. So there was like this almost eight hour period where I was just kind of not there and all that pain and, uh, you know, from the detox and that mental anguish was just gone and lifted. And like, I just was kind of, I don't know, man, I, I can't existing, I, existing, but on a, a plane, you know, that I've, I can't describe, I can't explain. It just like, there was almost like a time warp, like that time warp I had on math. <laughs> this was this, onto the dance flow. This, this was a, like, uh, you know, a different same, kind. same, but different, same, same. <laughs> like I woke up and, and, um, I was in a safe place, man. And they, they checked me into this detox and, um, I'll never forget this situation. I've never heard of this happening, but like they, they brought me in, sat me down. The nurses came in and, they're like looking at me and chatting back and forth. And, and, um, the one lady says like, we don't know if we want to let you in. 
to the detox. And I, and I'm like, why? And they're like, you're too big of a liability. Like you look like you're, I I can't believe you walked in here type Mm. of thing. (laughs) They're like, well, we've been talking about it and, um, we've decided to admit you. Is there anything you want to tell us before we put you in your room? You know, we know your history. And I'm like, well, I got this catheter in my chest that I've been slamming dope into. Maybe you guys want to do something about that. And, um, (laughs) their eyes got this big. (laughs) They they bugged out and they said, you wait right here. Did they literally and went and got the whole, like this huge hospital staff. There's all these doctors, drug counselors, nurses, like everyone from the rehab. They're standing there looking at me just baffled. (laughs) And they're like, we've never heard of, of this. We've never experienced this. No one's ever walked into our detox after, you know, slamming dope into a catheter for eight months. Like, dude, we're going to rush you over to the hospital and and get that thing out of you. Yeah. And like, you know, get some fluids in you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're going to try to help you. Oh, thank God, man. Thank God they took a chance on me. And like, after I was there, um, for a week, they're like, they pulled me aside and they're like, dude, you smelled like you were rotting from the inside out. Like you smelled like you were already dead, you know? And it turned out like I had had an infection, you know, from the catheter. Like, I don't know if the tube was like partially in and partially out, but some of the dope I was slamming and coagulated blood was like building up and it was just all bad. Like you're not supposed to have a catheter in your chest for eight months. Yeah. And so certainly I, not supposed to slam illicit narcotics into it either. No. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, man, that was the beginning. Of, that was the beginning of my journey in recovery. And I can't believe I just used the word journey. I fucking hate that. Why? <laughs> I don't know. It just reminds me of like the Hobbit. <laughs> well, you just fucking walked out of Mordor, dog. Yeah, pretty much, pretty <laughs> yeah. much. Yeah. It's like every time I hear, oh, my journey, my journey. I'm just like, oh, it's so hippy dippy. <laughs> I just fucking said it. I'm so mad at myself. <laughs> well, What's we, your clean date? Well, we, we can we can take it out. Nah. Yeah. Septem- <laughs> September 11th, 2002. You're fucking kidding. Yeah. September 11th. A year later. A year later. You, so you were in Mexico slamming fucking heroin well, no, when 9-11 happened? No, no, no. I was in Mexico for eight months. The year oh. before, I was actually at the Canyon Club in Laguna Beach, which is like this kind of a Lano Club situation. I know exactly where it is. This rich guy donated all this money. They built this It's fucking illustrious. Club. It's insane. I tried to get clean there a million times, and I also slammed a lot of dope in the bathroom. <laughs> At the Canyon Club because it was in Laguna Canyon on the way home from Santa Ana. And everyone knows the safest place to get loaded is in the bathroom at a meeting. Yeah. (laughs) Because everyone's just expecting everyone to be fucked up and loaded. And I certainly was, (laughs) you know. And so that keep coming back thing, um, that means a lot. It does, you know. The only requirement for membership is a desire. Yep. You know, thank God for that. Yeah. So... How long did you stay at the McDonald's Center? I stayed for like a week of detox and then, you know, 30-day, your standard stay, and then went off to sober living. You know, went to this place uh, in PB that was like, you know, my counselor at, at, at the McDonald's Center called it Relapse Row. But I, I chose it because it was um, right next door to this meeting called Dawn Patrol. 
and it was right down the street from the Alano Club. And I just wanted to position myself in a place where I could get to a meeting. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's where I landed, man. Nice. And uh, when I went to move in, I the guy's like, here's your, your bed, and this is your place where you put your clothes. I opened the top drawer, and it was filled to the top with beer cans. Holy shit. And the next drawer down had a freshly used needle in it. I'm like, oh, welcome home. Jesus. Opened the window, just dumped everything out, moved my clothes in, and fucking I was on my own path. And, um, man, I had a mission, and it was to stay clean. Yeah. And, um, like I said, I had had that experience, which, I'm not going to lie, it made it a lot easier. Like, I feel like the obsession was just instantly removed for me. That's a big one. That's a big one because, like, I, in one of the books about recovery, it it's the mental and the physical, but then the spiritual malady, like. Or the spiritual void. Yeah, yeah that's man. a big one. It is, and, like, I, you know. It just all was kind of taken care of for me in that one moment in that room in the condo. You know, I had a, like a, a one, two, three moment. Like I I knew I was powerless and my life was completely unmanageable. And like I, I, I came to believe, man, when that girl told me, you know, that I was beyond human aid, man, I believed her. And I instantly fucking was like, okay, I believe that there's hopefully something out there that can right. intervene. And then I chose to turn my life over to that thing that I still can't describe. And fucking, man, I reap the rewards of, of doing an honest first, second, and third step. In that fucking, in that 10th floor. It's that so moment, gnarly. Like in, in, a, in a moment, it all happened, you know, mentally. I ran, I, I, ran, um, I ran through those three things in my head and fucking. That is something to be coveted though. Cause like, I feel like I'm having an awakening versus an experience. And for those that don't understand the difference is like an awakening is something that happens gradually. Whereas an experience, it's like what Jeff's or I'm sorry, Fred, why the Jesus fuck do I want to call you Jeff? Frank, Jeff. I have, <laughs> uh, I don't know what Fred's describing is, is an experience where it's sudden and it makes your path so, so vividly clear and lit up and it's definitely something to be coveted. Yeah, man. And, um, uh, you know, if you listen, it happens for a lot of people. It's not an uncommon story. While it doesn't happen for everyone, it happens for a lot of people. It's, I mean, Kenny has the exact same story. Sure. You know? 100%, yeah. It just, not not what led up to that moment, but when he, you know, got on his knees and said that prayer, man, fucking the obsession was removed for him. And I know a lot of people, I've been clean for a long time, almost 20 years, and I know a lot of people that have that same story. You know, and if I had to give any advice to anyone struggling, man, just ask for the obsession to be lifted. You know, mm-hmm. it's worth a try and keep doing it until it happens. You know, that's like the strongest message I could carry to anyone struggling because like, dude, the obsession is is at the core of this disease, man. You know, and like. A lot of people struggle with it being called a disease, but someone described it to me like this. You know, the way the reason we call it a disease is because it's progressive, it's incurable, and it can be fatal if not arrested, Mm. just like any other disease. Yep. (sighs) And so, um, man, I have that disease (laughs) 100% without a shadow of a doubt. And I I think that contributes a lot to. Um, me being able to stay clean is that like I just stopped questioning it like I was fucking convinced to my core that um, I'm an addict 
and no combination is ever going to work for me. Right. And that I needed to apply a, re- a program of recovery to find a new way to live. And that's what I did, you know. Uh, one of my favorite lines in one of the books I've read about recovery is we don't have to understand this thing for it to work. All we have to do is follow direction. And man, when I started following direction, my life started to change. Getting them goosebumps you're talking about. (laughs) I got so lucky that I landed in the place I landed. And I, you know, I, for a lot of years trying to get clean, like I just never, ever heard my story told or I never landed in a place where, um, I met someone who used the way I did the same. I I needed to, I needed tangible proof that someone that used the exact drugs I did in the way I used them could recover. Because in the beginning, and it says that in in that same book, that um, our stories is how we relate Mm -hmm. in the beginning, you know? So we were talking about war stories before we started, man. Fucking, I need to hear war stories so that I can be like, dude, you're my guy. Like, you know, if all we talked about was what it's like now, how would anyone that's new relate to us? You know, like I needed tangible proof that a dope fiend could fucking find a new way to live. And I found that in my sponsor who came in and did an H and I panel, man, <laughs> told his story. And I was like, that's my guy. And he's still my sponsor today. Hell yeah. Yeah. And, um, man, what was your first year? Like, dude, I say this in meetings and like, I don't share a lot. You know, one of the things I was told by one of my mentors in recovery is, um, and this is just for me, this is just what I was told and something I've abided by. He's like, don't ever volunteer to share, learn how to listen. You're never going to learn anything while your lips are moving. And if all you're doing in a meeting is concentrating on what you're going to say when, when you get a chance, you're missing the message. Learn how to listen, dude. You don't have any answers. And I still abide by that rule today, 20 years later. Dude. I only share when I'm called <laughs> on. Damn. And I, and I try to listen. Of course, I, I do H&I. It's a huge part of my recovery program, man. Fucking love H&I because that's where I first heard the message. And I share. And then there's meetings that I go to where it's um, leader calls on you. Mm-hmm. But never do I volunteer i try to listen and relate to what's being said you know and i have another friend who i hear is is dying of this disease but he carried a message man that i'll never forget when he was clean and he was he said listening is an act of kindness so when you sit and open your ears and just really try to listen to someone you're being you're showing them a kindness you're being kind because it's hard to listen man we got chatter in our heads and we think we know the answers and man, I've learned so much from just shutting the fuck up. <laughs> I, I, I can fully relate after COVID and me going back to meetings. That was my goal is not to share. And, and somebody said this uh, in a meeting the other day and it, and it's, it's still, Hello? It's, it's my kids. <laughs> it's, it's really stuck with me. And it was that, um, that recovery uh, doesn't need me. I need recovery. Absolutely. So, you know, for, and not saying that I was like, oh, well, I, you know, recovery needed me, but it was some sort of arrogance of like showing up and like being Mr. Recovery and having a lot of sponsees and sharing at every meeting. And it's, it's fucking pointless because I didn't learn anything, but it, my almost uh, what I learned is my, my ego kind of controlling myself. 
So yeah. now, now sitting on my hands and listening to a meeting, you know, for instance, I went to one yesterday and uh, cell phone in the pocket and really just focusing and paying attention to the meeting. And I got so much out of it. Well, I'm going to say selfishly, I'm glad you used to share a lot, man, because like, dude, as someone that's been around for a while, like if everyone did what I do or how I work my recovery, then no one would share. And so fuck watching you guys, all your, your crew and your, your, your posse of guys staying clean and doing this thing and your lives like changing and unfolding is fucking really cool for me to watch. Mm -hmm. And even though like, I don't know all you guys, you know, you know, super close, like you guys got a close knit group and you know, I'm older and have my recovery group, but doesn't mean I'm not watching, you know? And like, dude, it's fucking really bitching to watch you guys and hear you guys. And it's obvious recovery is working for you guys, you know? And Mm -hmm. so you sharing all the time helped me, right? you know, all you guys. I'm, I went through, I went to a meeting last Thursday and it was a popular meeting and it was packed. And, uh, I did not, I did not feel at home. I haven't been going to meetings as often. I've been, I haven't prioritized it and I need to, but I also like, after going through that, like I, I was crawling in my skin and for anyone that knows me, like the center of attention and, and speaking is like my get down, but I just felt so like a fish out of water. And I, I'm like, in my head, I'm like, I need to go to smaller meetings. I need to go to more men's meetings. Like I need to, and like between work and our, our brand and my relationship, like I'm, I'm going through it right now. Truth be told, like I'm, I'm at this like crisis point and it's a thousand percent because I'm not doing the work. And like, I had that conversation with my sponsor last night and Dustin's said it to me. He's like, you need to get back in the fucking book, dude. Like I'm not that I'm (laughs) stuck on a four step and it's (laughs) fucking, I'm in that chaos and it's not good. Well, um, and Mercury's in retrograde. (laughs) <laughs> Mercury's yeah, in we, lemonade we, or whatever. We just had a full moon. Yeah. yeah. Um, had a blood moon. Something. Um, that same guy that told me, man, learn how to listen. He also told me, you know, and this, this it really hit home. He's like, dude, you're just a fucking visitor until you've worked the steps, man. Oof. You're not a member. You're a visitor. Right. <sighs> and that might be harsh. <laughs> it might be a harsh message to someone. And it probably has pissed a lot of people off. Cause I've said it in meetings, you know, but it's like, <laughs> that's my story. You know, I, you know, while I feel like I had this amazing experience and like the problem was removed, um, I was still in really, you know, a lot of fear about what was going to happen if this thing didn't work. And like, um, you know, I, I made a commitment to myself to do the things I hadn't done in all my past attempts. And I said, I was going to follow direction and I was directed to work steps, man. And so, man, I got busy, dude. I got busy. Was that part of your first year? Did you blow through the steps your first year to go? Yeah, I did. I did. But to go back to that first year thing, I got sidetracked, man. This is not a common story, but fucking the first year of recovery was the best year of my life. Yeah. The best year of my life, dude. I had freedom from active addiction. I, um, I, I, I wasn't plagued with the obsession and, um, God, dude, I had a new outlook on life, and I knew that if I just stayed clean, um, my life was going to get better, mm. you know? And I had done some things, you know? I'd been some places, but it was all miserable, man. It was plagued by active addiction. And like, um, man, I was free. 
you know, that was, that's like the biggest gift I've gotten from being in recovery is that freedom, you know? And like when I first got clean, my sponsor, um, his brother was the general manager of this restaurant in PB called Gringos. It's not there anymore. It's like right at the end of, um, uh, Grant or at the end of Garnett, right before Crystal Pier. It's like a fish restaurant now, but my sponsor's like, Hey, come down to Gringos. Jim wants to buy us lunch. His brother was the manager there. And so I'm sitting there with my sponsor and, and, and Jim comes over to the table and he's like, you're hired. And I'm like, what? He's like, you're hired. He's like, why don't you get a job here? Why don't you come work here for me? And I'm like, I didn't come here to get a job. I like walked in with sandy feet off the beach and like I had some residual checks coming in and he's like, dude, fucking I'm in recovery. You're in recovery. Come work at this restaurant. And like I went from making six figures a year to $6 an hour. And it was the fucking best thing I ever did in my life. It was the funnest time I ever had. I had a real job and I was good at it. Like, you know, it, it was relatively easy. And, um, the manager was my buddy, you know, he's in recovery and like there's women's running around. Dude. <laughs> I mean, I got a wife now, so I don't want to go into that part of it, but like you don't need to drunk chicks pulling me into the parking lot during Sunday brunch was definitely a part of that. <laughs> that, <laughs> that job. Finish him. <laughs> yeah, it was, and that's all we have to say about that folks. Yeah, right. It was fun. Yeah. But yeah, my first year of recovery was the best year of my life, man. That and was, how old were you? I got clean two months before I turned thirty. <sighs> so I, I, you know, I my birthday is November 9th. and so I had sixty days, September or I mean November eleventh, you know, because wow. September eleventh is my clean date. So right. I had two months roughly when I turned thirty. Fuck. I know so many people with double digit recovery that got clean at 29 or 30. I'm, I'm one of them. I don't have double digits, but I, yeah. I got clean when I was 29, about four months before I turned 30. So, you know, gives me hope. <laughs> I know. I, I kind of relate with that too. There's an old timer and he got clean at 34. He's still clean. And, uh, I'm like, I fucking want to be just like him. I don't well. I don't want to be just like him, but I want his recovery. <laughs> you want to be a crusty old man with double-digit yeah. recovery? I w- I'll tell you who it is, but, you know, he's just a fucking, he's a G. He's an OG. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> Hell yeah. Awesome. So what is, what's life like now? Jeez, man, life is insane. I mean, honestly, we're, we're having this conversation right now, and I'm such a selfish prick because I know that you're going to be leaving soon. I'm like, fuck, I want you to stay. Fuck you. Well, know? I'll say this. <laughs> I, I'll be home one week out of the month. I know. So, um... <laughs> And all of you probably wouldn't even really know I was gone. Like you'll still see me at meetings and yeah. um, I'll be back. Um, but yeah, I'm moving to Tennessee in a couple of months. I'm so excited. Yeah. My wife's already got a job there. She applied and got hired to the third top rated elementary school in Tennessee. And uh, man, my business, we're opening a big facility there and uh, it's going to be a new chapter, man. Hell yeah. Yeah, and so you work in recovery, correct? Yeah, I own, I, 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 so I, I reached a point where I was like jumping around doing a bunch of stuff. I worked at a restaurant. I, I became a hairdresser in early recovery. I was like, yeah, I had this girlfriend that was a makeup artist and she's like, you should be a hairdresser. They make a lot of money and you know, it's, it, you would be perfect as a hairdresser. I'm like, Oh, okay. Why not? <laughs> so I went to the Paul Mitchell school downtown and, um, 
Yeah, man. Became a hairdresser for a while. So like, many addicts have gone through that school. I know, dude. <laughs> Literally, dude. Oh, man. So I was a hairdresser for a minute, but uh, I, uh, it, it wasn't for me. And so, and then after that, I was like an art and antique dealer. I was like, like a picker, like buying and selling and, and doing that kind of stuff. And, and, um, I had managed to, to get this house in over in La Mesa and, um, kept telling my wife, God, this would be a, a great sober living. I want to turn this into a sober living. And so that's how I got my, my introduction into the recovery industry. So I started the sober living and, um, yeah, that was like 15 years ago, and um, now we're fully licensed and have wow. 30 beds in San Diego. We we do um, medical detox, residential, partial hospitalization, and, and outpatient. And um, we just bought um, a facility in Tennessee, like a, a nur- it was a nursing home, so it can house up to a hundred addicts. Wow, a hundred people. Wow. And what a better time to have something like that with the global pandemic. Pandemic, fentanyl. excuse me. You know what I mean? Yeah, you man. know, You know fentanyl's out in Tennessee, too. It's everywhere. A lot of the clients, because uh, my business partner, my both my business partners are located in Tennessee, and so the bulk of our clientele in San Diego are coming from Tennessee oh, wow. right now. You know, I run an alumni group down there, and um, yeah, we're getting a lot of people from there, man. It's, it's, it's a big problem, not just here, but right. everywhere. Right. Where is it in Tennessee, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, the facility? Yeah. It's in an area called Columbia. So it's like 40, 40 miles south of um, Nashville. Oh, nice. Yeah. So Dustin went to not, uh, Nashville this year. Fucking loved it. It's so awesome, man. Yeah. And uh, my wife's going to teach in a, in a city called Brentwood, which is right there, kind of between Franklin and Nashville. And uh, we're excited, man. God. What That's a, incredible. What a life. Uh, it. I'm blown away. Like, all, five, so you were five years clean when you started sober, sober living. Sober living, yeah. That's, that's what an amazing, amazing accomplishment. I was at like a, a another jumping off point in my yeah. life. I was like, what am I going to do, man? I, I got a real, I, I went to real estate school, got a real estate license because I, I knew that the hairdressing wasn't for me. And I wanted like a, a big boy job. Like I want to be, feel like I got like a, you know, a real job. So I, I went to school and I got my real estate license and, um, uh, I was going to try to break into the La Jolla market. Like, of course I want to go straight to the top. Come on. I want to go, I want to sell big time real estate, which in 2007, breaking into that market was not, you know, being, you know, not from La Jolla. It wasn't the easiest thing to do. And so I was getting frustrated and I told my wife, like, I'm either going to do recovery or I'm going to do real estate. And, um, Turned out to be recovery. And so I convinced my wife to move out of this house and I turned my house into a sober living and, and thus was the beginning. Right. And, uh, you know, I always say I know a lot about two things in life, um, active addiction and uh, recovery from addiction. And so what better, what better field to be in, man? Yeah, mm-hmm. something you fucking relate to wholeheartedly. And I have a passion for. Yeah. You know, I'm fully aware of the miracles that happen and unfold in rooms like we've all, you know, been in, you know, it's just, uh, it's undeniable. So I like to surround myself with miracles, you know, (laughs) and that's, that's part of the reason why I love Kenny so much, man. Fucking love that guy, dude. That's a rad dude. 
He is a fucking miracle. Yeah, so if, are you. If you ever. <laughs> but, you know, it, it. I know that. I know that. But, I, you know, I feel like um, it's easier to recognize in someone else than yourself. True. And so, fucking, I hear Kenny's stories and I see his, you know, bullet holes in his chest and, and fucking, you know, hear stories about from people that knew Kenny right. back that's, in the day. See, that's that's where where I was like blown away. Cuz you know, Dennis and there's a few others that Johnny. knew Kenny. Mike Hood, Mike Hood back in got the day. some stories. I mean, Kenny didn't even share some of the shit that I've heard, you know what I mean? And he was just <laughs> a fucking wild man. Running the streets in San Diego, dude, just wild. I mean, as gangster as it gets. Yeah. Dude, it's so funny too because I didn't meet Kenny in the rooms. I met him at yoga. Yeah, like I was telling you. Oh yeah. So the funniest story: we're like in the locker room. There's like three dudes in there. It's me, Kenny, and this other guy. And um, you know, we just got out of a class. It was like a daytime yoga class. And and um, this guy, his name's Conrad. Weird dude. Out of nowhere, he's like, 15 years ago, I was shooting heroin, and now I'm doing yoga. I'm like. And I had never talked to Kenny. I had seen him there, but um, didn't I hadn't talked to him yet. But yeah. he um, he was a guy I just wanted to know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's something about him where you're like, I want to be close to that guy. I want to know that guy. And he just looked like, you know, someone I would have hung out with back in the day. Mm-hmm. You know, he had the shaved head, the tattoos. He just looked like a dude that I would have hung out with. Sure. So I'm like, dude, he looks like I need to know that guy. So anyway, this guy Conrad says that and, Kind of like turned around and, and Kenny looked at me and, and Kenny's like, it's been five years for me. And I was like, oh, it's been 13 years for me. Wow. And like, so we just started up a friendship and it turns out we were both members of a recovery community. And um, and that was the beginning of that, man. We've been fucking partners ever since. And yeah. like Kenny um, came into my life in a time where I was really like kind of disenchanted with recovery you know, I was going to a different fellowship and, um, I just was, um, I needed a change, man. And Kenny introduced me back to my roots, you know, which was a different fellowship, right. you know, fellowship that I worked the steps in and had my, my foundation in. And, um, I started hanging with him and we started doing H and I together and, um, fuck man, you hear that guy's story and you, you, just being in his presence, man, it's obvious that the hand of God has touched that guy. Mm-hmm. He's a fucking miracle. H&I especially. Like, that's bread and butter for and anyone who doesn't know. That's health uh, hospitals and institutions. It's where we take meetings into hospitals, treatment facilities, or prisons and programs. It's like, yeah. that's, I, I want to, I need, I need to get, I need to dive into some H&I. Let me know. Oh, <laughs> shit. Yeah. I will let you know. I have panels. Oh, I know some people. Yeah. <laughs> I, know, I know a guy. I know some people. Yeah, so, man, I, I do H&I with Kenny, man, and sometimes we'll go and I'll just be like, dude, you just run the whole thing. I don't even want to share. I just want to listen to you. <laughs> I just yeah. want to listen to you share, dude. Yeah. You know, and it goes back to that thing, like, just because you have X amount of time in recovery doesn't mean that people with less time can't help you, mm-hmm. you know? And fucking that, that dude has helped me immensely, you know? I, yeah, you would hear him and I was, I was, I thought that he had like 25 years and I didn't realize that he was coming up on 12 and I was like, whoa, fuck, he wrote it to the end. You burned the wick at both ends. He did. And you just hear him talking. You're like, that guy's got wisdom beyond his years. Yeah. 
rad fucking really he just he just dropped off a tuna steak to my house and it was delicious nice. i might add yeah and and dude you're you, you use the right word wisdom you know it's like there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom like i can tell you everything you need to know about how to stay clean you know how we stay clean how to stay clean through certain situations but you gain wisdom by living through those experiences and staying clean you know not just hearing about how to do it right doing it you know and so um the longer we stick around here man we gain wisdom and that's how we're able to help people you know because if knowledge helped people then everybody that came in would stay clean like here you need to read this book you need to go to x amount of meetings you need to you know work these steps you need to do this and it's guaranteed you'll stay clean that's just not I don't know if that's really how it goes. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to get to recovery at a point where um, you want to be clean more than you want to be loaded. Mm -hmm. Thousand percent. Without, yeah. you know, without any doubt. And then the recovery process can help you live your life, man. To the fullest. Lost yeah. dreams awaken and new possibilities, possibilities arise. arise. That's right. Come on. Dustin. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. When I'm sorry. I read that fucking changed my world i love that's like one of my favorite lines of all time an addict any addict can lose the obsession and find a new way to live yep yep oh god chicken skins that's my that's my that's my go-to line yeah. dude, at the end of h and i i'm about to bring it home yeah I, that, yeah I say it to him all the time lost dreams awaken man this yeah. is it like look like dude look. you guys are living the dream man you guys got things happening man it's so cool yeah. one nightmare at a time baby yeah, <laughs> <really>. <laughs> dustin you got any farting words man of course I do. Fred, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, this man. has been what what a journey this has been for us. I mean, seriously, I didn't even, uh, you know, know and realize some of the things that you've gone through. And like I said, you know, I know that you will be back. And I know that he's funny because he's, he's a he's an avid fisherman, you know, so he's like, I will be back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The tuna's running. I'm going to be running I back I did home. realize, though, that you can fly to Puerto Vallarta for the same price that you can fly to San Diego. From and Tennessee. From Tennessee. <laughs> it's about the same distance, and my mom has a timeshare there. So I have a feeling I'm going to be fishing yeah. in Puerto Vallarta. Yeah. Quite a bit. Come pick me up, right. boys. Right. <laughs> trying to entice Kenny to, hey, just meet me in Puerto Vallarta. Let's and fish. He, and he will, too. He will. When we were at dinner a while ago, Fred's like, yeah, so I'm going to be driving back to Tennessee. You want to come with me? Kenny's like, yep, I'm coming. <laughs> I'm like, I, I knew you would. <laughs> but, the right person to ask. You know, look, man. It's it's really really cool because you are a fucking miracle. You know, there's been, you know, I, I, everybody that is a is a drug addict that's in in the rooms of recovery. We all are miracles. We've all been in you know situational things that probably couldn't have turned out okay. You know, but listening to your story, man, like you're a real fucking miracle. And to have a fucking catheter in your fucking heart and shooting dope the way you're doing and not have health problems now i mean that's just you know it just goes to show you man you you, you got down on your knees and some fucking miracle happened yeah. you know and that, and that's a fucking what a what a beautiful story and what a fucking great great time we had today and that wasn't the only miracle man i've, mm -hmm. I've had a lot happen you know and for like the name of the show is trust the process and i feel like that's all you've done this whole time and it's just fucking paid dividends and man, that is, you know, if I had another message besides get on your knees and ask for the obsession to be removed, it, it would be put recovery first in all situations. Mm. When, when I've gotten sticky situations in my recovery, I just revert back to what worked when I was new. 
right. tons of meetings, educate myself on the disease, get with my sponsor, do service. I put recovery first and, and my life problems work out. You know, right. it says it in that same book. Um, when our spiritual needs are met, our life problems are reduced to the point of comfort. And what we do in recovery is spiritual in nature. And so um, when I put my recovery first, my life problems seem to fade away. Not immediately, but in time. <coughs> and so I've that's been my go-to, man. I, I want to thank you for coming on to the show, first and foremost, and taking the time out of your day. And then also just putting the spiritual touch on it where people don't feel excluded. It, it, you've made this entire episode has been completely inclusive, especially seeing as you've been on such like you've had that champagne taste and then you've been drinking Mickey's forties out in the river bottoms. All day you know long. I, mean? <laughs> I love it. And I couldn't be, uh, what a fucking closing song to go out with on a spiritual message. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's awesome. Yeah. It's been another episode of the LFG 1904 show. Thank you, Fred. Got it. Man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> it's Frank. It's Frank. Frank. <laughs> <laughs> fucking idiot. I'm a fucking idiot sometimes. I don't think I've ever heard this Black Sabbath song. Oh man, get into this album. It's a good one. I'm gonna have to check it I out. I meant to talk about that, but it's all good. Hold on, hold on. <laughs> Do you have more to add? <laughs> well, just the Black Sabbath angle, man. The first time I saw. The cover of Sabbath, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. I stole the album from my older brother. I was like, dude, there's a whole world out there that I don't know anything about, but I really want to know about. Like, have you seen that album? Yeah, where it's the... It's the guy laying on the bed, and there's like the angels and demons flying around him, and a bit skull, and yeah, it just, it's it's pretty dark. I did not know that. I'm thinking of a different album. I'm thinking of the one that has Warpig on it, where it's like the 3D dude. No, no, that's Paranoid. Paranoid. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Check out that album cover, dude. It'll... Make you think. Really? I like the t- Tony Iommi, the guitarist for Black Sabbath, is missing his fingertips in a in a warehouse accident. Yeah, and he shreds. Did you watch that documentary on Netflix? I did not. Oh, there's one. There was one recently. It's pretty good. <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck? I, I don't know. Back to the music. Yeah. Well, you motherfuckers have a good day. <laughs> <laughs>